Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. It's our 200th episode and I thought, what better way to celebrate than by having on someone who inspired me to do to do all of this. Uh, someone that way back when, when I heard him on the best show on WFMU, the great Tom Sharpling's radio show, and he called in with a, uh, I guess a complaint about a Rolling Stone song that Tom had played. Uh, from that moment, I knew that this was someone I had to find out more about. His legendary fanzine, The Gift, which later changed his name to Deathlock, uh, that's a true inspiration for this show for so many of us in the world of, of, you know, being amateur historians for punk rock and hardcore and music and trying to connect the dots. So it's weird to be talking about him while he's listening on the line right now. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to blather on anymore. Everyone, please welcome to turned out a punk Charles R. Martin, the inspiration for this whole show. Charles, welcome to Turn Out a Punk. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, question for you. Where are you calling from? I'm actually calling from Toronto, Ontario. Toronto? Oh, my God. Oof. So much great early punk and underground music up there in Canada. Who Who are some of your favorites from the kind of crucial early days? Um. Well, you know, like... I don't know, at the risk of getting, you know, uh, too obscure, like I, I think a band like The Slime being one of the first bands that put out a DIY LP, I think Blasphemy from Vancouver, one of the first black metal bands of all time, uh, the Nunfuckers from, uh, you know, Ontario, I think that's one of the most underrated hardcore bands ever. Oh man, I, I maybe, maybe something like Painted Thin from, uh, out in Winnipeg a really right. underrated band. And, uh, you know, and, and I'd, I'd probably have to say, I guess for the last one, I'm going to go with, uh, simply saucer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm la- I'm laughing because it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny. It sounds like you're into the real obvious stuff. R- really? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I go a little deeper than you. Let's just say that. Well, well, I guess who are some of your favorites then? Oh man, uh, just off the top of my head, um, you know, we'd have to go all the way back to 1946 and, and the true start of Canadian punk, uh, Mickey Tremblay and the Trembling Tremblers. Uh, you know, they actually never, never recorded, you know, but, but by all accounts, they were ground zero for full on flagrant Canadian pre skiffle. And I've seen a sketch of them and, uh, yeah, it's the real deal. Oh, uh, gosh, who else? Um, hmm. Oh, you know, of course, there, there's Hank Bouchard and the motorcycle jackets. You know, that, that super crucial early rockabilly from South Gallaghan, New Brunswick. Oh, my God. Whew, that stuff is smoking. And if you haven't heard their lone single, Give Me a Slice of That Rappy Pie by the Time You Die, uh, your whole existence will have been a waste. 
to, to take it a little further, it it makes Curtis Gordon's 1953 side romping and stomping sound like an even more tepid, laughable straight cast. <laughs> if you can believe that. Oh, who else? Um, uh, oh, of course, the psychotic glaciers from uh, Red Deer, Alberta. And I'm not hyping when I say this is the most intense garage punk anyone ever has or ever will hear. And if if you played their 1965 single, Drunk at East Burnt Lake, back-to-back with the Sonics the Witch, you would absolutely 100% think that the Sonics were Mike and the Mechanics because they're so flagrantly weak in comparison. Uh, what else? Oh, my God, of course. No no list of Canadian underground rock would be complete without Dog LeBlanc, and of course, from up, up there in the Yukon. He was a 23-year-old zinc miner when he moved to Toronto in early, gosh, it was 1970, I think. And he moved there to either make it as a singer or a murderer for hire. And it turns out he, he was actually able to do both for several years. But, you know, sadly, his uh, music career and also his freedom came to a crashing end in March of, I think it was 74, when he realized that a man he was contracted to snuff was was in the audience of a show that he was performing at this dive in Guelph with his uh, his band Dog LeBlanc in the Filth Pit, who, who you got to hear this stuff. And so he, he actually shot the guy in the face in the middle of the show and he acted like it was all part of the of the of the performance but you know of course everyone in the audience started running away and puking because of all the brain matter that was flying about and he was he was arrested by the mounties at, at the end of the second encore which was actually pretty nice if you think about it they allowed him to towel off before they took him in. And uh, I tell you, if you consider yourself any kind of authority on punk, which I have to say I'm rapidly doubting as this interview progresses, you are required to view the footage of Dog performing his song Face Down in Red Snow on the Gus McDonald Show in June of 1972. Uh, unfortunately for you, I'm the only person that has a copy of it. And to be to be brutally frank, you really haven't earned viewership yet. Um, and a, a final note on Dog. Uh, if he had not been sentenced to life and subsequently stabbed to death by other inmates in 1974... It's Dog LeBlanc, not Iggy Pop or the Ramones that you'd be yanking your crank over as the inventors of modern-day punk. But you know all this stuff already, right? I guess I got to do more learning because I've you've really stumped me on a bunch of these. <laughs> you haven't heard of any of this? Uh, if I'm being honest, no. Oh my god! Well, oh my god! Well, that's I'm I'm <laughs> I've been embarrassed for people before, but uh, not like this. And uh, I'll tell you. Look, son, you know, I'm I'm not here to hold your hand as I take you to grade one of punk school, okay? So uh, maybe get back up with me when you realize that Pennywise didn't invent the distorted guitar, okay? All right, I'll talk to you later.
Hello and welcome to Turned Out a Punk. It's the 200th episode! Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining me for all the past episodes and all the more to come in the future. But today, we are here to talk about the epic 200th episode of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, as always, my name is Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm going to be bringing you a conversation with not one, but two, well, may, no, still just kind of one person who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, the guest is me. Uh, I'm going to be interviewed by former guest, one of my closest friends, the Rhythm to My Heart literally on stage, Jonah Falco of the band Career Suicide of Fucked Up, and he is a former guest of the show, as I mentioned, and so he will be here to interview me about my journey into punk, but also we're going to be joined by a bunch of other guests. You've heard one off the top right there, and a thorough clowning that I received. Shout out to the best show, the greatest show, the inspiration for this whole thing, my my rebirth into audio Enjoyment. Also on the show, we will be joined by favorite guest from the past year, one of the all-time favorite guests, Jack Black, to answer a few more final questions I have before we can transition into the post-200 era. And we'll also be joined by John Pollock and Wei Ting of one of my favorite podcasts, Post Wrestling, another one of the huge inspirations that led me to this path, led me to wrestling. But I'm don't worry, I'm going to save that to the end. So if you don't like wrestling, you don't have to hear that part. But I implore you to listen to it because it is a lot of fun and those guys really got me on my my feet when it comes to doing this whole podcasting thing way has been a constant sport and john has been a constant uh thorn in my side no just kidding john has been a, a constant support too i love those guys to death and they are coming up on the show but before i get to any of the guests i gotta start off by having a, a state of the union a come to Jesus kind of moment for the podcast, and I will first start off this whole thing by humbly saying thank you. Thank you to everyone listening, everyone that listens each week, everyone that writes me, everyone that comes up to me after a show, everyone that finds any source of enjoyment from this podcast. Thank you for supporting it. Thank you for telling your friends about it. Thank you for believing in it because... Without you, there would not be a podcast. I started this thing at a real low point. You know, I'd just been fired from much music. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Uh, I knew I still wanted to talk about music. I knew I still wanted to do stuff about music. And so, you know, just decided to try this thing as a way of doing it. So, you know, I really, it's been me a lot of the time doing this, you know, editing this thing, interviewing the guests, putting it together. But I would be lying if I pretended I didn't have a lot of help along the way from a lot of different people. Um, I'm going to start off chronologically. Way back in the very beginning, I got to give a huge, huge, huge thank you to my manager, Brian Schwartz. And, of course, Kim Ross. Kim was key, key, absolutely key in getting this podcast up and running and keeping it running for the first few years. And so, Kim, thank you so much for all your help. And, Brian, thank you for your help. Gabe Spears who hooked me up with Audio Boom in the very beginning, who I used to work with at Beggars. Well, 
worked with, I was on the label and uh, we worked together when I was on that label and Gabe is one of my favorite people in the music business and has, you know, definitely, well, was definitely very instrumental in this thing, getting off the ground in the very beginning. Also got to say a huge thank you to Zach Felberg, Amy Abrams, who has stepped into Kim's role and has really helped getting everything going. Chris O'Toole, co-host of Footnotes, uh, host of Footnotes, uh, Buddha Blaze, host of Oil and Flowers, which has now moved on and got its own channel. So go check out Oil and Flowers, subscribe to that, rate it, review it. Uh, my long-suffering partner in crime, Lauren Moses Brettler, for putting up with me doing this podcast late at night. And yeah, and everyone else who's reached out and helped out. Melanie Kay. Melanie Kay has been a, a huge supporter of this thing, been a guest, uh, led to a lot of the coolest moments that have happened in this podcast. So huge thank you to Melanie as well. And yeah, once again, thank you to you. Really huge thank you to all of you for believing this thing. Uh, when I started it, I was like, okay, I'm probably going to do this for a few months, then I'll get another job and, you know, I don't know what will happen turn out about retire it, do something else with it, you know. But here we are, four, five years later, five fucking years later, and still doing it, and still a long way to go. There's a lot more people that I want to have on. When I started this thing, I had an original list. I think it was, maybe it was 200 guests. It was definitely a lot of guests. I wish I could find that original list. I went looking for it today, but no such luck. I think it was on an old cell phone, and actually, now that I think about it, that is long gone at this point. But anyway, on this original list, there were a list of names of people that I had to have on the show. And I've scratched off a lot of them. There's a lot more that are still on there. I've actually added a lot more to it as time has gone on in my head. I mean, not the physical list, because as, as I say, the physical list is, is gone. But in my head, I've added more names to it. And basically, we're not going anywhere. So, you know, thank you for being around for this part of the journey so far. I also have to give a huge, huge, huge thank you to, of course, Vans. Uh, Van Shoes came aboard gosh, almost two years ago now, and said, we just want you to do your podcast, and we want to support you doing it. We want you to uh, just, yeah, be able to do it, not losing any money, because believe me, the first couple of years, that was not the case. But now Vans is here, and it's fixed everything. You know, I get to go travel around, do this podcast at various House of Vans events, met all sorts of cool people. Thank you to Brooke, to Chuck, everyone at House of Vans for the kindness and the support they've shown me at every single event that I've gotten to do with them, and for the kindness and support they've shown this podcast each and every week. So thank you, Vans. Also, a massive thank you to my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. Tristan uh, supported this podcast since its inception. Uh, he has been nothing but uh, <laughs> an unpaid workhorse for this thing. When he came on board, it was a pretty low point for me doing this podcast. I don't know. I was kind of checked out a little bit. He came on board, started booking guests, started helping me put this thing together, and yeah, really saved it, really gave new life into this thing. So thank you so much, Tristan. I love you, buddy. And now it's the part of the show that is going to suck, the part that sucked when I had to live through it the first time, which is, of course, saying goodbye to people that have been on the show a uh, massive goodbye and love and and thank you to uh, Freddie Pompey, guitar player of the Vile Tones, a guest uh, of this podcast, someone that I was a huge fan of, someone that I had always wanted to meet, and someone that, you know, through, through that love and <laughs> kindness of other friends got to meet, but 
you know, through this podcast, got a chance to sit down with them and have that really, you know, long, in-depth, prolonged conversation that I'd always wanted to have. Uh, also, a massive goodbye to Anthony Bourdain, someone that really believed in this podcast, someone that supported this podcast, uh, and someone that left a huge hole in the world without his presence. And my mom, uh, Cheryl Hastings, losing her was one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with in my life. Uh, and it sucked. It really, really sucked. But I'm so grateful that I did this podcast uh, for no other reason than I got to sit down and have a really long, in-depth conversation with her that I now have recorded forever. And, uh, yeah, I miss her terribly. I miss her every day. And it, uh, it does get easier. I'm not going to say it doesn't get easier, but it certainly, uh, doesn't ever go away. Uh, that's for sure. Also, I want to say goodbye and rest in peace to Wenda Thompson. She was my stepmother, someone I never got a chance to interview for the show, uh, someone that had a huge impact on my life and everyone's life around her. She was one of the most kind, loving people I've ever met, and I'm going to miss her terribly. So that's it. Um, whew, there's not really too many places to go from here. Um, so why don't I just uh, start the show? Uh, we're going to start the show off the top with uh, an interview with myself. This is conducted by Jonah Falco. Is one of my favorite people in the world to get to talk to. And when the idea came to interview, or people have been requesting this for a long time, you know, and people have tried to do this before where they've asked me how I got into punk and done the turnout of punk thing with me. But, you know, I knew Jonah would do it a little bit differently. And Jonah, as anyone that's ever met him can attest, is one of the kindest, sweetest people on earth. So I felt very at ease in his hands. So I'm not going to blather on any further. I'm going to sit back or <laughs> let you, sorry, sit back, relax and enjoy. Oh, before I do though, uh, I guess I should get to some other housekeeping notes. Uh, as I mentioned, there will be more information about the Patreon a little later on in the show and some changes that are going to be happening to turn out a punk, but do not worry. The main Turned Out of Punk show is always going to be here and it's always going to be free. Nothing is changing with Turned Out of Punk, the show. But there are changes coming to Turned Out of Punk in general. We're launching this Patreon. There's going to be a lot of big things happening. Cool things, big things, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happening. But I will explain all that later on in the show. For now, here is myself as interviewed by Jonah Falco on... Turned out a punk. Test, test, test. You got your levels the way yeah, you like them? That's fine. Yeah. That's be good. Cool. Uh, should you start or should I? Is the well, question. I'll, I'll do an intro. Okay. So this will be after my intro. After your intro. Okay, well, uh, here's a voice that you've heard once before on Damien's show and one that you're not used to hearing asking the questions. But today's a very special day. As you know, it is the 200th episode of Turned Out a Punk. And the tables have turned. The heat is now on your hero. The man who you know 
You know about the way he accesses information, but you don't know how he got to be this person. How did he find his way through all that muck and mire? We are speaking to the one and the only, the legendary, the man whose back I look at almost every night from behind a drum kit, Mr. Damien Abraham. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, Damien. This is a rare, rare honor, and uh, I must admit I'm a little nervous. Well, there's a lot of people who I've, I've thought about who would do this thing. And uh, as you say, we've spent more time together than just about anyone else in my life, probably barring Tristan. Tristan hasn't been on the show already. You've been on the show. Yeah. You know about the stuff that I know about. You've been through it. I know. I was going to say, like, I've got preconceptions about how you got into music and how you got into punk, not only from hearing the stories, but just because we've known each other for so long. Yeah. Yeah. so this is going to be a kind of, you know, the thing about your show, too, especially when you interview people that you know outside of music, people that you know from your life, you were there for a lot of their stories. When you interviewed me, when you interviewed Mike, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you can you have your own memories of these things. So it'll be interesting to see what we can pull out here. Yeah, it's going to be great. I think I think this is the, uh, well, thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a scene in 1991, The Year Punk Broke, the documentary, mm-hmm. where uh, Dave... Mark, I think actually Thurston Moore asked Murph about what he thinks about when he stares at Jay's ass. <laughs> so I guess, and I always, but I, mean, I guess like you know, you're if you are Murph, yeah, I'm Jay's ass. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's begin yes. the same way you begin every episode with your guests. And since you are uh, you are the visitor today, yes. How did you get into punk? And uh, what is what is your first occurrence here? What is the origin story? Uh, it's always been around. Yeah. Like I really, I grew up with a dad that, uh, bought, never mind the Bullocks when it came out. Um, my brother and I kind of like, yeah, like my earliest memories are like madness, our house in the middle of the street. Mm. Um, Ian Dury hit me with a rhythm stick. Like he had all these 45s. Like I, I heard it that way. And actually my parents, when I was a kid, uh, had a painter come paint the house and it was the guy who sang in the Battered Wives. No, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. So this is amazing, because your introduction to punk, then, is not only uh, the sort of thing where you find out that you want to learn about punk, and you have a preconception, and you find it, but you were just given the be- the basics to yeah. begin with, in the home. And the- did you ever find that, like, finding the music that made, w- made you want to steer away from it, the way, like, a lot of kids don't want to listen to what their parents listen to or what the people who come to paint their house listen to? I think the only aversion I had to it was, like, later on when... Uh when we went to my dad and my mom split up, my mm. dad moved to England mm. and we'd go and visit him and we'd always go to the the Madame Tussauds rock and roll experience. I think it was Madame Tussauds, but it might not have been. But it would be like an animatronic rock show. Yikes. And then before that they had all these dioramas of wax sculptures of like musicians and the sex whistles were one of them and they all had swastikas on. <laughs> and I remember just being like, Oh my god. Yeah. This is, I can't ever this like this is, band. Yeah. Why this was this in my house to begin with? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it was, you know, my dad explained it to us and was trying to, like, contextualize, like, why, you know, the shock and all that that they were playing with and all this kind of stuff. But I remember as a kid, that gave me a real strong aversion to it, so much so that, like, later on when a friend of mine got into it, I was just like, 
no, I don't want anything to do with that music. Oh, really? So I was yeah. going to say, like, hearing it is one thing and, like, your first exposure, but obviously it translated to you being a part of punk rock and, like, experiencing other people doing it. So you were saying your first experience with another person your age was, like, a negative one, actually. Well, no, it wasn't my... Like, he was he was my... And still is, like, a friend of mine, but he was, like, definitely at the time my best friend, Simon Ennis. yeah. And he had gotten into it a little bit earlier. He'd been a huge Nirvana fan. And Nirvana had kind of passed me by. I felt like you had to pick a side, mm. Guns N' Roses and Nirvana. Yeah. And I was already pretty entrenched in the Guns N' Roses side. Now, years later... You're on know, the other side. Well, no, but also I realized they come from the exact same place. You know, yeah. like Duff, McKagan, and Nirvana, like, you know, all come back to Seattle, you know? And, it, and I think at the time, I didn't realize, you know, the undercurrent of punk rock that kind of connects everything so when you were discovering punk rock so we've already established that you liked you you heard and experienced and sort of at least ingested the 70s version of like post-pub rock early punk but i think the the thing that you've spoken to me about in the past before and in other instances my dad was going to shows too yeah yeah well you were a kid yeah when i was a kid like probably before i was born but he saw the vile tones really and he saw like he would go to the horseshoe and he saw teenage head he saw the battered wives. He's at the record release party because I have the actual record he got at that record release party with his like t- reserve table number. Oh my god! And there too. So like he was going to shows, and uh, this is also like a bygone era for concerts. Like with, that, you must have been experiencing too. Not very many people would have uh, somebody in their life that has something like that. Also has the inclination to sort of keep and archive these materials. Mm. Which I think you get a lot of that from from this experience as well. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you're such a you're like a historian. You contextualize things all the time, and you see how they connect. But you must, I think, like between you hearing this early punk records and when you like decided to start going to shows, there must have been a huge gap that you diverged. Like, yeah. wh- where did you go before? So you, you experienced punk, but where did you go before you became like interested in subculture and punk rock uh, in the in the genre? I was like really into rock operas. Rock operas, yeah. that's right. You love The Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise, but that was later. I think like, I probably saw it around then, but I didn't oh, understand yeah. and appreciate what that was. Hang on, did later. you just say you loved rock operas? Yeah. Oh, how convenient. I know. Yeah. So uh, what's your favorite rock opera? Uh, at the time, it was The Wall. Oh, right. I really love The Wall. Wow. Um, now it's probably Tommy. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all have to say yeah. Tommy. Yeah, it's like the best record. Yeah. And, and then I guess like after that, it'd probably be that Mind Eraser, uh, two song, twelve inch, great record, great Patagno uh, cover art as well. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic uh, art too. Yeah, it's right. fucking great. Um, no, I, I really like rock operas. My first concert was Rod Stewart. I saw Rod Stewart at the Sky Dome. Didn't you see ACDC on one of their tours yeah, that was in like, like the mid eighties? Razor's as well? Edge, eighty eight. That was the next show I went to. Um, we got my stepfather to take me. and My friend Casey Baldwin. To see ACDC. We were huge ACDC fans, probably because of uh, Who Made Who. Okay. That, remember that Stephen King movie? Did you yeah, yeah sure. The trucks. Okay. That go, come become sentient and like kill all the people. Uh, we And ACDC did the soundtrack to it. And the soundtrack, that was just like an ACDC Greatest Hits album. So we were really into Greatest... We were really into the ACDC hits at the time. And they came to town. I think Jackal opened. Wow. I don't know. But I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, we were there for the opener. This is this is amazing though because it's like you are now that you've ended up being a kind of performer and a, and a, and a musician. 
uh, it kind of makes sense the way that you approach a show, knowing that like some of your most formative, or I, I say they're formative, you can say whether or not they are formative, but like early things which leave an impression because there's no other context for it, these things kind of stick with us, mm-hmm. the first things mm-hmm. we see, and you're talking about seeing ACDC, you know, this is this is a show's show. I think also it's like they did also too. They had an amazing stage set up on that tour. They brought in the Hell's Bell. Yeah. They had the cannon for those about to rock. Yeah. Uh, it had like two raised platforms, and they were tearing around. Also, you know, you think about it, Brian Johnson doesn't have that great a voice. Yeah. In the he, conventional sense. Yeah, he's got a sort of like singular method I yeah. guess you could say yeah and it's like an incredible voice for that it, band it's weird too because his voice in Geordie was like a little less uniform I guess he's having to do his best Bon Scott impression yeah I guess he was trying to do a Bon Scott impression and has to keep in that high register because Bon had this like sort of nasal voice yeah. that could sort of swing around like a well they cabaret. look physically so different like Bon Scott like looks like he'd have that voice but like Oh, yeah, well, Brian... He's, like, looks, affecting it. Yeah, he looks... He's much chunkier, thicker, yeah. thicker yeah. guy, even even in, like, the early 80s, you know? Yeah, and he was... he was, <laughs> They were amazing at the show. Um, yeah, and, like, it definitely was, like, a thing that stuck with me. We tried to go to the Metallica Guns N' Roses show, mm. but we weren't allowed to go. Right, a little too adult content. The riot happened, I think, and then we couldn't go. Well, I'm sure... I, I, You've talked probably about the the big riot in your life. We can maybe yeah, talk about on. that later. But yeah. I know that you've talked about that on a different episode. So we'll just leave that as a little teaser. But, uh, you know, you're a kid. You're experiencing music. You're experiencing rock and roll. And you're experiencing the rock and roll of total excess. So yeah. where does where does the switch come and flip where you hear something? What was it that you heard then that sort of like curtailed that rock and roll impulse you know I'm sure like, you, you know yeah probably the Sonic Youth Sonic like, Youth and Sonic Youth that would have been like the first because that's me Nirvana makes sense like hearing Sonic Youth so who did you hear first though Nirvana or Sonic Youth I probably heard Nirvana first I remember actually going to LA uh, my dad was just had uh, was going through a rough time and was like living in a hotel in LA wow and my brother and I went down to visit with him and uh we stayed with them, and I just remember watching MTV, and that, that was like the explosion that happened. I remember seeing the Sugar Cubes video yeah. on there. I remember seeing like a Dinosaur Jr. video on there. I remember seeing like all this stuff because it was like Nirvana was just starting to explode, and so like the gates were kind of opening. Right. Um, but like it didn't make sense to me at that point. Like, you know, I didn't, I was like Guns N' Roses fan, and like Guns N' Roses, I remember Nirvana had beef at the MTV Music Awards. <laughs> So I was like, no, I like Guns N' Roses. Uh, and then I like got uh, busted for shoulder tapping. Well, now, wait a minute. This, this is a story that I know, but I feel like we should talk about the shoulder yeah. tapping story later. Yeah. So let's, let's get that's you. Where, that's where I got into punk rock was out of that. Really? Yeah. Because the shoulder tapping story, for those of you who don't know, you can, why don't you talk about the shoulder tapping story briefly? It's when you, it's when you like... Shoulder tapping is what we called it. You guys called it that too. Oh, yeah. A couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've got a couple of years apart we called it too. That's when you get an older person to buy you beer. Right. And Or booze. And it's like, comes from the idea that you're tapping them on the shoulder and being like, hey, buy me that. Yeah. And so there was um, like an army of kids lined up outside this liquor store waiting to get this guy to buy them booze. Mm. And this dude had made a little business of it, of it like just taking money. And then the cops, like, raided the line. Oh, my God. And I had all this beer in my hand and threw me in the back of the cop car. And 
he called my parents. Oh, man. And uh, he actually, the cop lied to me and said he wasn't going to call my parents. And, and, and then he called them. And then he called them later on. But I was at home when he called them. Because I can remember the picking up the phone at the same time. Oh, man. My stepfather did on the other end of the line. Ooh. And uh, they forbid me from hanging out with all these kids that I was hanging out with. And it was all, like, kind of hippie kids because it was, like, the return of that revival. Yeah. Uh, and then um, I went that summer and I got a job. I had to get, like, a, not a job, but, like, I became, like, a counselor in training. Yeah. And so I became this counselor in training. And uh, during the course of that, I met this kid, Nick, who wrote graffiti. He spoke weed. Uh, but he also was, like, super into Sonic Youth. And so he made me buy 1991, The Year Punk Broke. Right. And that was, yeah, like that was the Rosetta this, Stone. Yeah, this is your touchstone. And yeah. I, know, I know you've talked about this a lot in the past. And yeah. this, this is the thing that sort of opened the doors to you to understanding that maybe punk existed yeah. in, a, in a way. Well, I think it also, it kind of showed, like, especially the way Thurston Moore talks in that. Yeah. Because he's talking about punk rock in these really grandiose terms. You know, and they're talking about 1991, and this pre-Nirvana blowing up, right? Yeah, yeah, like, sure. It's almost, they're doing it ironically. Yeah, yeah. Talking about 1991 being the year punk broke, because right. they're talking about Motley Crue yeah. covering Anarchy in the UK, and Vogue doing the year punk broke as their cover story, but, like, not even referring to Nirvana. Um, but so Thurston Moore kind of, like, talking about that, the Ramones being in that, uh, it kind of was, like, this. The when I realized, like, oh, this shit's all connected. Mm. And... Sonic Youth, Schizophrenia. Uh, I think I still think Sister is like the ultimate bridge record. Well, yeah, it's like a tour de force that record. Yeah, it's like. Yeah. But it feels like it's like, on one side you have, the world that was, and through that record you get to the world that is. Mm. Um, and and so that record, Schizophrenia, like, Tough Gnarl, Cotton Crown. Like, there's so many songs on that that like became my favorite Sonic Youth songs. And that movie opens with them doing schizophrenia. Yeah. And, yeah, I was hooked on that. That's amazing, too, because it, uh, I mean, how did you feel about the records that you had in your house growing up all of a sudden? Like, did, I, you, did you come back to those? Not yet. Not yet. No, that was actually a couple of years before I kind of realized that they were... They were yeah, like, truly connected. Yeah, like, because that stuff was just starting to kind of come out, like the rock and roll history documentary, Time Life did. And uh, there was another one that PBS did, I think, too. So what year would this have been? This is... 94? 94. Yeah. So all this music that's in, in that film was sort of alive and well, and you were kind yep. of in the in full swing in terms yep. of, like, um, alternative, grunge, whatever, like the, the music that, like, is propelling um, subculture to the surface. Yeah. Were you, did that film and did that moment kind of give you the an identity as like a punk or were you just like uh, dedicated in a new way to being part of like contemporary music culture? Because yeah. you just, you're talking about seeing like I'll, legacy acts a lot, right? And yeah, like, I wanted, I wanted to figure it out at that point. Did it feel more new than yeah. like, because you're listening to Guns N' Roses already and that's yeah. still like, that exists at yeah. the time, you know, that's like, it felt, it felt new in the sense that like this stuff was all, Post Nirvana breaking, like these were all the records that were coming out, you know, experimental jet set yeah. trash, like um, No Star Trash, is it? I've always forgotten the name. Um, Dinosaur Jr. was putting out their big kind of post, you know, in utero. Yeah. All that stuff was kind of like hitting around that same time. Um, so I was like getting into that, and it felt like it was contemporary because also much music was like 
begin to get behind that stuff too. So you'd see these videos, you'd see these bands on much music, and you'd be like, oh shit, like this is, you know, this band I've been reading about in Spin Magazine. Like yeah. it was also, and this comes up on this podcast all the time, but like it's amazing how much of the burden kind of fell on you to put the pieces together. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I I think that is, that's a hindrance in the past to like putting the pieces together fast, but I also sort of, I enjoyed the idea, I enjoyed the challenge, and yeah. I enjoyed the idea that once you start on the trail, you know that you can keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I think that was the, uh, that's the great thing about it, is like, it also forced you to be dedicated. Like, you'd have to go to a library yeah. to get a book that would help you connect some of the dots, but then you need another book to help you connect more of the dots. Well, I think e- equally important to you discovering music as a genre and discovering it as like a thing that you liked and were interested in you know knowing you and knowing the way that you interact with it there must have been uh, a moment something you bought something you saw something you experienced that made you so dedicated to it so i, I before we even get to like hardcore or yeah. straight edge or anything like that i have a feeling that probably at that time in your life you dove in face first headlong into collecting music like find, oh, gathering music is that part of your connectivity or we did, did you stay on the surface for a little while longer I on like, the, well I don't think I stayed on the surface like I definitely tried to get in yeah you know and it was just like anything and everything that fit like okay I'd heard about this band or like this band's on this label that I know this band's on right so mm-hmm. um, we went and saw Die Cheerleader um, a classic Toronto act a classic no they, were, they weren't from Toronto you're thinking of uh Cheerleader 666. Oh, right, sorry. Die Cheerleader was a British group that Henry Rollins produced their record. I am thinking of that. Right, okay. Yeah, and they had their their album cover featured a topless naked cat person holding a machine gun. And uh, iconic, to say the least. Yeah, what was Simon Ennis, my brother, and they were opening for Filter. Wow. Hey, man, nice shot fame at the Opera House. And we went down there and went and saw the show. And met them afterwards, and they and they signed our shirts. Nice. Yeah, I know you have one of the the most important punk relics in your life is the famous signed shirt. Yes, yeah, hanging on that. the back of your door they signed in that. your office. They signed that. So yeah. how many signatures? So for those the uninitiated, young Damien, enthusiastic as he is, seeing all this bands, all this music that's blowing his mind, and not only that, he's meeting the people. One of the key yeah. components of punk rock too is the sort of like erasure of the line between audience and band yeah and you don't this is amazing to be a young person yeah. getting that firsthand instead of growing up thinking you can't access these people it, it was funny because actually I went to a show before that I think it would have been before that when Dinosaur Jr. played Massey Hall and uh, I remember at that show it was still like a huge rock show mm-hmm. um, but I remember you saw Dinosaur Jr. at Massey Hall yeah unbelievable yeah with uh, June and uh, Cub get out of here yeah it was a weird ass show for for show but I remember Jay peeking through the porthole like at the backstage door and looking out and I remember like locking eyes with him and waving to him and he waved back wow yeah and he remembers it to this day he really does yeah no he doesn't at all yeah of course (laughs) he does not (laughs) I can if you you should do that in Jay voice like I totally remember that (laughs) no I don't he has no no recollection that's in my top 
thousand memories. Yeah, this is probably his favorite memory for yeah. the Massey Hall show. Yeah, exactly. It's a little underintended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Might have been a bit of an overplay. Yeah, take that, you heartless <laughs> SOB. <laughs> uh, but no, it was... I remember that show and like seeing him make eye contact with me. Yeah. And then meeting Die Cheerleader at that Die Cheerleader show, it kind of was like... Yeah, it was this idea that there was a breaking down of the barrier between what is a band and what is a fan. And that really all came crashing down, literally, at the uh, uh, No Means No Ultra Bidet Alice Donut show <laughs> that I went to. Well, okay, well, I, th- I feel like you should tell this story. But it's like the one where, like, the dude, I'm there with uh, my friend uh, Ted Moore, rest in peace, and uh, Josh Bricker. And These are names I haven't heard since high school. Yeah. And we walk up to the front. We'd gone to Value Village and bought, like, suit jackets beforehand, like plaid, <laughs> ugly. You know, it was when you could still get all that stuff at Value Village. And we walked right across the street and went to the operas and went to the show. And we saw Ultra Bidet. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was already experienced because I'd been to, you know, these other two shows, but these guys, it was their first show. So, uh, And then eventually we push our way kind of towards the front during uh, Alice Donut. Yeah. And Alice Donut's still like a fucking mystery to me. Like I... But you, and you talk about Alice Donut all the time. I know. I've got it. a couple of their records and like, you know, like it, the songs, I don't know what they're going for really. My favorite song by them is the song Tiny Ugly World, which is like an acoustic number and it's very different. So <laughs> the show... Acoustic number. The lead singer's playing a xylophone at the lip of the stage. And this guy comes and pushes his way in front of us and just spits on the lead singer. Whoa. And uh, he, he jumps off the stage and tackles this guy right on top of me and my two friends. Fuck. And he's like beating this dude, trying to fight this dude on top of us. And we're all just like, ah. And uh, yeah, I was like, I, that was when I was sold. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to be at. Like, I want to be at more of these shows. That's him. Um, he went to the Warp Tour that summer and met Swingin' Utters and really, yeah, like just, it was just kind of like meeting these bands and realizing that like, it's, it's kind of like a world where you can build your own reality. Yeah. And it's kind of one of these things too, that like the more you go, the closer you get to the, yeah. to the center as well. Yeah. It's like, like you say, it took three shows for somebody to jump off the stage and have a fight on top of you but it probably at the fourth show you realize not only are fans and bands you know um accessible to one another they're they're the same thing yeah bands are also fans you know yeah and bands you know they just because they make music doesn't mean they stop pursuing music you know what's weird actually it's at that show that i saw trigger happy for the first time and i saw a lot of bands that day like quicksand like i think i saw sublime or giant millimeter like Swing and Utters, Tilt, Vizo, like so many bands that are like, you know, still huge parts of my life. But more like than Tilt and Vizo. Yeah, but more than any other band and more than any other person that day singing for a band, Al Nolan, like just the way he carried himself on stage and like mm. almost had a persona on stage, I think was the one that stuck with me the most. He, uh, you know, you and I share kind of this this experience with Al too, though, where he like uh, he's very gruff demeanor, but actually he's quite generous with himself. Yeah, and that's uh, you know that's kind of a weird microcosm for the whole genre, where you 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 go to these gigs when you're an impressionable teenager and you get battered around and with people dancing and it smells and it's strange and it's loud and you don't really understand what's going on, 
But uh, ultimately, you know that there's something good and welcoming in there. Yeah. yeah there's definitely. a piece to it, right? I was also, it was like a really, you know, in retrospect, like a terrible time for punk rock. <laughs> it was like the rise of like the, yeah. the Cali jock yeah. in punk. Um, but, but you know, the, th- this is, I don't think it's the rise of that, too, because I think that's always existed. Like, even yeah, when you see right. the old, there's, right. there's the one person that, like, their energy is sort of too much for everybody else, and they don't have that sort of sympathetic uh, engagement with the music. It's about in- the total reaction. Yeah. Like the Hammerhead best show sort yeah. of reaction. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, that's that still happens now, and that's happened in, in the generation when we got it. We're getting into punk as well, but you know these bands, all the bands that you just mentioned, other than Tilt and Vizo, Quicksand, Dinosaur Junior. Uh, who else did you say? Uh, you saw that L seven. L seven. You know, like these are like institutional. Dinosaur Junior. I didn't see that day. Uh, yeah, really. sorry, but uh, you know, the, the, even for a Warp tour, like there's a lot of sort of foundational institutional stuff happening on this show. Yeah. To see it all at once is kind of impossible to digest. But yeah, Warp tour was like an amazing way to kind of get. You know, a buffet of like everything within a certain range that was out there on the punk landscape. Like, it got a lot more codified as time would go on. But even that second year is like a Rock from the Crypt, Pennywise, No Effects, Fishbone, huge spectrum, Deftones, right? Like, yeah, like all these bands that kind of like could be lumped together under hardcore. So, when did it become specific? Because you are. I know that uh, you you like a lot of different kinds of music, but uh, when I say when did it become specific, I mean when did you start to like, when did you start to really focus on finding the one thing that you could sort of bore into? Because um, yeah. you know, when you go to shows when you're a teenager, you see everything and you sort of like everything, and you're getting signatures on the back of your t-shirt, and you you know you're seeing Alice Donut on, in one day, and you're seeing L7 in the next day. When did you decide to sort of focus your energy? When did you find a community? Because these are these are you were talking about gigs that yeah. you know a lot of people would have been at. When did you find yeah, I don't a think community? I, did. I don't think like I think like I would go with my friends. Yeah, and then probably meeting Ewan. Yeah, but Ewan was older, and he right. worked at Rotate. We go to Rotate all the time. You know, Rotate this. Yeah, Tristan and I, my brother and I, and we just like nerd out. And that was the thing. Like my friends that I gotten in with, it, like they had kind of like. Simon was more into film and, and then rockabilly and the cramps and that style of punk. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends Ted and Josh were like into it, um, but like only like a, like I couldn't drag them the whole way. Yeah. You know, no one wanted to be into it like I wanted to be into it, which was like, you know, nerd out. And then I met Ewan and Ewan was like, I've been going to shows for a while by this point, I guess even. Um, and Ewan's like, and this is post-AFI ride, post, oh, no, that's, so. I guess before I met that, it was like, I remember going to, yeah, my brother and I were on Center Island, and DBS was coming to town. DBS, the yeah. infamous DBS. And DBS had already come to town and played the Hyper Club, but DBS was going to come to town. I'm going to play Classic Studio, sorry. And this, this time they were going to come down and play the Hyper Club. Mm. And they were going to be playing, I think the first show was DBS and Anti-Flag. And maybe that was like supposed to be the first one. So my brother and I were on Toronto Island, came back. And it's that thing that also comes up on the show a lot where you would go to a show and for some reason you'd be like, I have to be there about four o'clock in the afternoon 
that's the time it should be there yeah. for the show. So you'd be there for just hours. All day. All, all day. Yeah. And at that show, I met Ed Fox. Ah, yes. And uh, and at that point, it was kind of like, oh, shit, this, like, he was like, oh, I do this thing called Mods and Rockers. And I had heard Mods and Rockers before that, but we became friends with Ed. And that was, like, really where it felt like we were becoming part of this, like, sort of, like, scene and community. And around that time... Maryland's Vitamins had moved downtown, so mm-hmm. we started meeting those guys because Simon Ennis's band had played band shows with them. Yeah. Um, and I met Five Knuckle Chuckle because I could go talk to the bands at these shows and met Trigger Abbey and Al, of course, by that point. Um, but yeah, it was like meeting Ed Fox and then meeting like a bunch of kids that were going to shows. But then really, you know, I didn't really feel like I fit in with anyone until I met Mike and Ryan. Wow. Um, Mike from Fucked Up and Ryan Gavel from No Warning and everything. Yeah. Um, through you and you yeah. know, it's like there's these two kids because I really like Youth Crew, and uh, he's like there's these two kids that are straight from Etobicoke, and I think I first met them at that Blood for Blood, un- Strong Intentions oh, right. show yeah. at the 360. <laughs> Might have been the first time, and uh, talked to him and and just yeah you like, hit it off hit it off. So Mike and I would talk on the phone every day. For about an hour and a half, I, I've heard I've heard this the legend the legend of. What's wrong? Did you talk to Mike on the phone? On the phone, you know I have I've talked to I haven't talked to like Mike on the phone beyond like where are you over there? Okay, catch you later. Bye. Since like you know two thousand and two. Yeah. So when before we, any of us had a mobile phone yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, not not an hour. Mike and, and half, I would so. just sit there on for hours talking, and it's like weird to think about Mike even like talking like that now period uh yeah i mean it's i don't i find it even weird to think about myself talking like that period like uh, to to like just my friend like i haven't had an hour and a half phone conversation dude you definitely went out and talked to those people that you hung out with last night for at least an hour and a half yeah but that's we were in person of course but could you like have you talked to mike consistently for an hour and a half um, in the studio when you spend sometimes days with them? Yeah, I mean, probably not consistently for an hour and a half, let's be honest. <laughs> so, but this has an amazing time, too. To just yeah. And just imagine sitting there, just staring at your wall, talking to somebody no, about, like, like, what do you want to talk we'd about We'd be looking now? through the Victory catalog. We'd be yeah. looking through, like, the Rev catalog. We'd be talking about records, about tapes, about theoretical bands. and Oh, my. See, this you know, is... Man, we'd also have Ryan, too. It would be like the three of us just kind of calling each other and then... Conference call. Yeah, conference call. And then eventually, like, quality. Chris Ritchie kind of became... You know, we met those guys and Boris. So for those of you listening out there, you're you're kind of getting a cast of characters here that's like a real time and a place for like yeah. the small Toronto hardcore scene. And so not only have you heard about the sort of genesis of Damien's involvement, but you're talking about people that are like still involved, still making music. Obviously, we're still in a creative partnership with Mike. Yeah. And... Uh, Gavel is still working with Ben and doing his own thing. Like all these people are still musicians in some ways. Quality, not a not a bandman, no. but uh, you know, a larger than life personality. Yeah, like yeah, I remember, I think we knew him. We'd see him at shows. My brother and I, and like, you probably not you because you're like such a gentle-hearted human being. But like, did you ever like weirdly beef with people at shows just because they were the same age as you? When I first got into like was going to pop punk shows, yeah. Yeah, I totally did. Yeah. I would just decide to like yeah. dislike somebody. And was like, it would be like, like and we oh. just like see them and stare at them, and he'd be on the same shows we were. Yeah, and 
Yeah, it was, but it's funny. Then we got to meet him, and then you know became friends with him, and like, yeah, it was such a weird time because it was like a lot of people. It felt like the scene was kind of like, you know, I don't know, like the next wave of kids was kind of coming together. You know, like yeah. I remember getting the no the as we once were tape, and Ryan and Mike were like, they're these kids, and they have a youth crew band, and they're from the beaches, and I was like, what? And I knew Christian because I'd see him around in the neighborhood. But, like, oh, none of these other kids I knew. Well, weirdly, I was talking to Ben about As We Once Were a couple days ago on tour because um, James Morton, the bass player of As One and Scare Tactic or whatever, he... I had basically the same experience that you did because he had the demo and he showed up one day when we were hanging out and he's like, I've got this demo tape of this band. I'm friends with the drummer, Arden. And uh, they're amazing. It's, like, the craziest hardcore I've ever heard. And we're like, What? And he's like, look at these pictures. It's like they're on trampolines. Yeah. And we were just blown away by this grainy, like, mysterious yeah. cassette. Yeah. And they were, ju- they were they were just in a practice, practice space. space. Yeah. They were jumping in the air yeah. and shooting each other from low angles. Um, Tex- it's also, textbook youth crew. It's funny to, like, think back around that time. I think the swarm starting and all those guys moving downtown mm-hmm. gave it, like, a sense of pride. But, like, hardcore-wise, there weren't, like... A lot of bands that broke internationally coming from downtown Toronto at the time. Well, Toronto, the big, the big hardcore scene in Toronto was obviously long gone in the early '80s, yeah. and then in the late '80s, it seemed like well, there was, the there, was there was like a lot of gigs yeah. going MSI on. And there was seven this, seconds had eight hundred people. Yeah, well, like the mid to late '80s had loads of shows as well, but by the mid '90s, I think it was, yeah, it was pretty yeah. fragmented, and like the bands that were hanging on from the late '80s were kind of more like. The Goofs, mm-hmm. Random Killing, yeah. uh, Armed and Hammered, like these these like punk bands that were changing with the times, but kind of not bringing a scene with them. Yeah, just, Hockey just, Teeth. Yeah, um, who were who were like definitely of a different generation, fast and raging, yeah. but were like so much older than us. Yeah, sure. I know, and it's really hard to connect, right? Yeah. It's like you can't expect the newest people to immediately understand why you're relevant if you're an older band. I remember know? the day. We met Chris Callahan. Uh, Mike, Ryan, and I went to a show, and we met Lisa and Alex from Acrid mm-hmm. and Joel, and they were like the kings of the scene. They were like the rulers of the scene at the time. It's funny how you start to like notice the social dynamic yeah. in these situations because yeah. everybody like you don't you don't find your feet. You don't feel confident right away, and you start to notice who has power or who has more. Like, and what's funny too, because like I remember at that point. Kids from the suburbs looked down on the kids from the city in hardcore. Wow. Because it was such a suburban-centric scene, right? Like, it was like all those bands were from... All those bands had money. Like, a lot of them had money, so they had practice spaces and gear, and they could play shows and stuff. And downtown, it just wasn't... There weren't as many bands. There were bands, but they were all older, like kid bands. Yeah, you don't get this the same kind of like resourcefulness for kids who grew up in a city as you did in maybe other towns. When yeah. I don't know, it's a time times are different as well. In the mid '90s, it's like media is different. The way you consume music, the way you make music, there's so much precedent for like the, the in- music industry being something slightly different. Even yeah. with even with the advent of like the Sonic Youth and the Dinosaur Junior like these are huge bands it's like unattain- unimaginable necessarily to think about making music like that right away if you're a teenager and watching it happen you know yeah yeah. I think also at the time it was uh, grade chokehold like all that stuff had happened so everything had just moved 
out west to the suburbs. Yeah. And, you know, the swarm moving downtown felt like they were choosing downtown over the suburbs. That's a big move. Yeah, it was a big move. And, uh, yeah, we went to Who's Emma. I think we saw the Weaker Thens. At Who's Emma? Yeah, Who's Emma. First time they ever played Toronto was Who's Emma. Same day that Heckle and Jughead's Revenge played Elma Combo. So, just to contextualize, uh, Who's Emma was a sort of community-run anarchist bookstore that did gigs in the basement. It's where a lot of us would have met. And it's where a a lot of... All the shows like previous to fucked up starting, yeah, have happened there. It was well, it was the like you know the it was hub. a place that anyone could get. And, and the Elma Combo is like a, a legendary rock and roll club around the corner. Elvis Costello's live record was recorded there. Rolling the Stones, Rolling Stones played there. Too. Yeah, yeah, Nick Lowe yeah. has a photo in front of the Elma Combo sign. Yeah, etc. Uh, etc. Et yeah, and so this is two big two worlds apart. Yeah. but it couldn't be more interconnected. Actually, at the scene at that time, yeah, well, because you and did both the shows exactly. Um, and so the option was I could go to a massive ska show that was happening at the opera house and it was going to be the stomp record show. And, uh, it would have been like a much more of a social event, Mm. but I opted to go with like Mike and Ryan to see the new propaganda side project. If, if, uh, if it was... If, at sort of like the TSN turning point, you know, culturally speaking, because you ended up in the market. Yeah. Instead of, I mean, you grew up in the East End of Toronto. Yeah, and I've been. And the Opera House is a place where all the big shows happen. All the big shows. That's like the main spot. Did you feel like that affected the way people were getting into music around there? Because the, the route is just like literally downhill to like a big venue where big gigs happen. Yeah, like I don't know. Like by that point, around then is when my brother had met all these other kids from the neighborhood that were younger than us. But that was like the birth of like Riverdale hardcore where all of a sudden it was like, holy shit, there's like 50 kids in this neighborhood that like punk and hardcore now. And uh, we had like bands and like you go to like parties and and practice. And I was like three years older than all these kids, but they all wanted to do bands. They were all straight edge and I would like make them tapes. What was your first band? Uh, Did you have a band in the river? The river Riverdale's a neighborhood. In yeah, Toronto. I had you're in trouble before this. Oh yeah, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I played, and you had a demo. You're in trouble. No, there's a live. There's a live recording, and there's a. Did um, you not ever release a tape? No, we never released it. We did a record a second. There's a You're in Trouble 95 demo. I think I have a You're in Trouble sticker somewhere. There's a sticker. There's a sticker. We That's stickers. it. We yeah, merged it. before we did music. You know what? It's a classic, classic formula. Yeah, yeah. and we played. Uh, Get the hype moving. Yeah, we. We played a couple shows, I think literally a couple shows, maybe four shows, and then broke up uh, one day. I remember breaking up, quitting in practice. I was always very, very dramatic and just going home and listening to intensity uh-huh. over and over again on the subway and being like, I don't want to make a band like you're in trouble ever again. I want to do hardcore bands from now on. What intensity record? The seven inch? Yeah, the the one that I think it was released, bought and sold. It was only a CD EP when it came out. Oh, okay, okay. It's still like I think the, one of the best. It's a raging record. It's actually. a raging record. It's really good, and it's also like the emotion conveyed in it is just like it has that second dimension. Like that's why I love Judge because mm. it has, uh, I guess, the sadness that undercuts the anger. Well, that's interesting to com- to, to compare Judge and intensity in terms of. <laughs> emotional content yeah because I think those are two really different things like 
the emotion in Judge is kind of like mournful and and longing, whereas intensity is a kind of a more like facing your fears sort of thing, or it's like it's bringing your emotion to the surface. Judge is so it's like a cowboy film, you know. Yeah, it's like a cowboy film, Judge, but there's also like a. If it's a cowboy film, then it's like Unforgiven or yeah. like um, High Plains Drifter yeah. or like uh, what's the what's the Heston one that's like John Ford? It's like the last one they did together. Uh, Searchers. Searchers. Yeah. Okay. Um, all these movies are obviously problematic for a whole other set of reasons, but like they also uh, kind of have like a they create archetypes. Well, I think at that point, like those ones especially are like messing with the archetype. Like the archetype's already established, and this is like. The guy who realizes that he's not done anything good in his life and that he's only brought sadness to other people or, you know, and I think that's the thing with the judge record, like, he's angry, but there's just, like, such a sadness for what what's become. And even when he's seeing, like, New York Crew, which is ultimately, like, one of the most, like, over-the-top violent, like, glorifying... Um, violence and wars between scenes songs ever out of hardcore <laughs> and just at the end he's like I want it back again he's like crying like you can hear his like there's like a nostalgia for it yeah the, the, well the nostalgia is amazing too because this is the judge record is iconic for for uh, a an entire generation missed what they're singing about probably yeah. and everybody after it they probably didn't understand for many years that they were singing about like an earlier iteration of the hardcore scene I think it's also amazing because it's like it, it shows like that's the narrative that goes out like Boston came around one night Push came to shove we were down to fight yeah. and then they won but I've heard from different people like conflicting reports yeah. and then John Joseph told me like don't ever think that Boston ever won shit yeah <laughs> I mean, how important is is storytelling in punk and like uh, in terms of in the music? You know, you're talking about like a band having emotion and talking about things and wanting the world. You know, there there's this self referential thing about a scene folding in on itself. How important is the kind of like oral culture of punk within the song within the, within the music? I think it was right. Like I think I think within the song itself, it, it's. Uh... Yeah, you know, like, it's right from the beginning. Like, you know, she was a girl from Birmingham. She just had an abortion. Like, right, there's, right, like, right. a narrative there. Yeah. Even in, like, the Clash songs, right? Like, it's it's trying to, like... That's what I think I love about punk music is it's ultimately reality music. Like, people singing about their reality. And even when they're singing about a fantasy, mm. it still portrays the reality, right? Like, the Misfits, you know, you kind of understand Danzig a lot hearing his records you know you know they're not real yeah the songs but like you you can kind of get a glimpse into the mind of the person that created them well punk is also about the a persona right it's about yeah. like personifying evil as a way to normalize yourself yeah I mean that's one facet of it anyway yeah, there's a lot of like in, in you know there's just so many personas over the history of punk rock and like people that mm. have become iconic for just like becoming a character what is with the obsession? I'm just thinking because I talked about Nick Lowe and personification and stuff. Do you ever think that there's a kind of like a an end game for punks? Where I, for a minute there, people that were coming up in the '90s through pop punk or got into hardcore in the 2000s, there's a minute when everybody decided that the only way out was country. You know when yeah. you spoke to you know I feel like now everybody's like I'm into jazz now or I'm into classical, but for a minute there, everybody just gravitated to country I think it just comes in waves right like you see that like look at X 
Yeah, you true. Know, they became like a country band at a certain point. Like how many of like, but that's also the saddle. Like how many of those bands? That's were? A, yeah, but it was cow punk yeah, genre. Yeah, but I guess it's also partly partly about nostalgia and trying to like unwrap um, American pop culture or like you know I you we take things like cow uh, cow punk or country and western and it's like a bit of an abstract, but you know there's. Tons of people that got into punk music who live in rural areas and yeah. farms, etc. Anyway, that's a bit of a weird divergence. I like I, yeah, like I think uh, I think that's a cool thing about punk rock is like a lot of people went back to things that they grew up with. Now with this toolbox that they had from punk rock and just change their genre or or change what they were, you know, tried to change the music that they grew up on. And that's a classic narrative about punk is that it's yeah. a return to form for rock and roll. Yeah. So, form, rock and roll, these things, I think, are second place to a burning question in the history of your life in music. Uh, and we already talked about one of the reasons, but when did you become straight edge? Because uh, surely this is a turning point. Yeah, I never really wanted to drink and do drugs. Yeah. But then I met those kids in school, and I didn't really fit in. And it was around the time of, like, being a hippie. It was trendy, right? So everyone's like... Trying to get weed, trying to get acid, those were the big drugs. Acid was like really popular, mm. and you know, so I did that stuff, but I didn't really like it. And then after getting busted by that cop, uh, I was like, "Fuck! I, why did I? Why did I even want to waste my money on booze?" And mm. then I just kind of hit a point where I was like, it, it, "Every weekend you go out and you could buy." a Mickey of vodka or like a Mickey of rum or something to get wasted on. Mm. Or I could buy like one CD. Mm. And so it became like this like constant choice. Like, do I want to get wasted one night and kind of keep up with my peers or do I want to buy a CD? Did you find that that same kind of, cause you, I think you create a lot of equivalencies like that. Uh, did that like start to, pop up in your taste as well like why would I when you start to like get more music you're like why would I'm gonna like focus I'm gonna bring my my money here to get yeah. this thing that I want access to only not like trying to I get remember, the big picture I was kind of like I kind of felt like this is what I wanted to do you know not drink not do drugs mm. and then I was hearing about Straight Edge you know like it was around um, I remember looking at the Path Resistance record the day it came out at <laughs> And they had it at Rotate, I think, or Full Blast. And I was looking at the crew shot, and I'm like, man, imagine that many straight-edge kids. Like, how crazy that would be. And then we went and saw Blink-182 with Body Jar and 10 Days Late opening at a matinee of the Elma Combo. Wow. And Body Jar was on Revelation. They had those shirts that have the big Rev logo on the back. And I already knew about Youth of the Day and Gorilla Biscuits. I must have. So I was like, I already associated that with Straight Edge. Yeah. So I bought that shirt thinking that Body Chart was like somehow connected to this. <laughs> and then you just ended up talking to more hippies somehow. Yeah. So I bought the Body Jar shirt. And I went to a party that night, which was like the girl that I had been seeing around that time. It was her birthday. And I got into a big argument with her. I mean, it wasn't her house. It wasn't her party. But I got into an argument with her and her friends about pro-life versus pro-choice me being like I think people should have the right to choose mm -hmm. and they were all just wasted and I'm like and then it was just almost like to to take like another further stand to be like I'm not like you guys mm -hmm. I'm like I don't fucking drink I'm straight edge yeah and then it was just from that point on 
uh, I was like, okay, I'm just going to claim this. Yeah, I mean, it's a really powerful thing to oh, like, set yourself apart. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and it's like the real rebellion. Like, it's the only real rebellion you have as a kid. Yeah. Because, you know, like, you're ultimately conforming in your rebellion when you're partying as a young person. Yeah, because you're doing the thing that everybody does. Yeah, yeah like, my parents understood when I got arrested. But they, they were pissed. Yeah. But they understood when I got arrested by the cop for trying to get beer and booze. Yeah. They did not understand it when I started putting a black X on my hand <laughs> and saying like ridiculous straight edge things that you say when you're like 15 and straight edge for the first time. Oh or my God. And straight edge for the first time. Ah, that's this is an amazing feeling too because like you say you're seeing punk in your dad's record collection and uh, he's got the ticket stuff so you get something that's yours. Yeah, that's yeah. really yours. Yeah, and it was and it's also like it is truly like you know straight edge is the ultimate. Uh, youth ideology because it's just like all about like you know you got to keep yourself sober because you have the power to change the world and it's all like Ian Mackay stuff right mm-hmm. like it ultimately comes back to like that DC scene and looking at what these kids were doing and just taking inspiration from that and then also like some ideas are poisonous comp had come out mm-hmm. so reading the essays of that and like yeah like I, I felt like I was part of something much bigger with straight edge like you know it gave me the ability to be like well i don't want to do this uh, and see that kind of license is golden too because it's you know even when you're part of a social group a scene of music you know mm-hmm. you have you have to do a lot of things you know you have to accept that some bands are this that and the other and to be able to like define yourself on the no statement yeah i mean that's kind of even though i don't think straight edge and the at the amorphous idea of punk are equivalent that aspect of it the no, the like validation of no is something that is actually really in common with the two things mm-hmm. one is like pop culture and one is like a personal culture of the self you know yeah I think it's like it's safety in numbers too right mm-hmm. like you want to feel as a young person like you belong to something and I didn't want to belong to everything else that people were belonging to but there's still that sense of like I'm part of something bigger than myself uh, we met Davey Havoc, too. There was an AFI riot, which we kind of, like, have alluded to. It's come up a lot in past episodes. I, I can only imagine. But it's, the, it's just still, it comes up in conversation in the van. Yeah. Every, you know, a, every three or four, you know, there's a percentage there. It was a very defining moment for Toronto. Toronto punk of a certain era. Uh, and I remember walking home with Davey Havoc and just asking about Straight Edge. Yeah. And uh, him just telling me about it. And then by the end of that, being like, yeah, this is for me. And, uh, yeah, there was that rejection of that party where mm-hmm. I said I was a straight-inch kid and then held on to that for as long as I could. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I was never straight-edge, and uh, I, uh, but my, my best friend at the time, Jesse Parker, was. And, uh, you know, we never really, like, butted heads about it, but I got really drunk one night and I threw up, and my parents found me, you know, puking in the bathtub with my pants down before I was supposed to go off to, like, you know, some winter camp thing, whatever, you're 15 years old. And, uh, you know, I woke up the next morning feeling an, an immense amount of guilt. And I said, uh, I called up Jesse and I said, you know, I think I'm, I'm, think I'm coming to your side. I'm going to be straight edge. And he actually talked me out of it in a very kind of, like, responsible way. But in, in, in retrospect, it's a very straight edge way, yeah. which is, like, as much as you get to do this thing that's against everything and have the power, you... 
you have a thing in your life that you have to hold on to and you don't really want to let everybody into the yeah. thing because yeah. it's so sacred. So he said, you know, he said something pretty eloquent, I guess, for a 15 year old. And he said, you know, you don't want to base your, your life's decision, something that's going to last you till the day you die on a single act of intoxication. You know, you better consider this because it's a big decision. And I, and I was just like, yeah, you're right. Never mind. And I never became straight edge. Is he still straight edge? No, he's not. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But like <laughs> lots of people who are straight edge. Who were straight edge are not, who felt that same way, which is the amazing thing because the wind blows and everybody's like, I'm just tired. Yeah. Let's, get, let's just, you know, I wonder what this is like. I think I probably would have been still straight if we'd never done the band. Uh, you think? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely. No, I think you, you might be right. But I also think that, like, actually, you're, I don't know how your taste would have developed having not been in the band because I think that, like, not going around the world particularly because you've traveled but yeah. like you know what I mean uh, well, I think I would have been playing like, music changes the way you consume yeah, music yeah like, and I would and I've traveled way more because of the band than I would have without the band sure right like I think you know I'd never been to Japan mm-hmm. I'd never been to China mm-hmm. Hong Kong Taiwan mm-hmm. like I think my life would have evolved incredibly differently without this band mm-hmm. um, yeah like I wouldn't take any chances I wouldn't have jump for any of these opportunities without this band kind of like forcing it yeah to happen no i feel the same way yeah for, for a lot of things yeah, yeah. so like uh, but i still think i would have been straight edge i think i would have like just become incredibly bitter <laughs> <laughs> just become like that dude there are two straight edge archetypes for people that are still straight edge there's like the embittered cynical straight edge yeah. person and then there's the kind of like completely effortlessly free-flowing you know, confident straight edge person. Yeah. And then, and, and then one in between is like somebody that is still like just vehemently involved in, you know, music, local music or whatever. I don't know. It's yeah. a combination of both. Yeah. Like Cynicism I, and dedication. I think mean like my ultimate like edge role model, what I'd hope I'd be like would be Chris Callahan. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's the, he's the, he's the latter. Like yeah. Just, you know, couldn't necessarily wouldn't bring into the conversation that he doesn't drink unless you offered him a beer. He's yeah. just like an eccentric and like warm, fun-loving person. Yeah, he's like the ideal one. But I know, and all these people have edge break. But I know what I'd be like. <laughs> I can picture the people I'd be like. <laughs> Very, you know, things that humble you in in life. And I think if I'd stayed at home, I wouldn't have been humbled oh. in the same way. Honestly, oh, it's a good point. It's a good point. Uh, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about this formative periods in your life and like these milestones, but we've, we haven't talked about one of the most important things, one of the most central things to your, to you, to your persona and to your involvement in music. And that is record collecting. Yeah. And we know we've talked about records being in your life and I'm sure you had things and you bought CDs, you know, I got to know you kind of through your brother in high school Mm -hmm. and, um, your brother knew a lot about music, and he been he loved Green Day. Yeah. Uh, and but he had like ten bootlegs and cassette like stuff. I didn't even know what a bootleg was yeah. when I was getting to know Tristan. And then after that, like seeing you, you were like this. You had a few years on him, so you have this even more wellspring of knowledge. And you you had records and like you collected genres. By the time fucked up started i think we went record shopping with you and you're like i only collect doo-wop 45s now oh yeah I collect, you had a yeah, doo-wop 45 by face yeah. and i'm just like what how advanced is this guy so record collecting i mean where do we begin uh i bought like my first rare record i think was like 
first record I remember buying where I was like, oh, this is more than it. Like, this is a, a premium because it's an old one. Mm. And it was a Committed for Life 7-inch. Oh, yeah. Um, Rotate had the first press That's of it. Amazing feeling, though. You're looking yeah. at something that's older than you are. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And, like, you're touching something that they theoretically touch. Well, actually, you know? I guess you're older than Committed for Life. Uh, what was that, 82? Yeah. 81? 81. Yeah, I'm older than it. In your face. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, I remember buying that and getting it home and being like, fuck, this is pretty cool. And then it was just, but we'd already been collecting as we'd been buying bootlegs at Graffiti Alley. Mm. So you go to Graffiti Alley and get a bootleg of the show the next day. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I still have like my Foo Fighters bootlegs from there, my whole bootlegs. I got a, like a lot of cool bootlegs at that store over the years. But like, and we were going to rotate, and I was buying like I remember buying every Millencolin CD single because mm. they had all different songs on the CD single versions and stuff. Love the CD single. Love the little tiny flat yeah. cases. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And then I bought. Uh, committed for life and I was like okay I'm going to start buying records and around that time we found it about full blast and mm. rotate this you know they would have rare records definitely they'd have rare records but they were always like you know kept on a shelf you couldn't reach this is, this no is matter how, how tall you got it's a, it's a Toronto <laughs> legend accessing these accessing, accessing these rare records but uh, well because it it's a weird time to think about now but like Information was was a currency, mm-hmm. you know, and access to information Bingo. gave you power. Exactly, and it, like you, you know, right right down to the fact that like who knew about records, who knew about these bands, like who had that information, and like yeah, and there wasn't a way to like circumvent that no, necessarily. No, there was no way to get records without. That's why I think I started collecting other genres because it was such. There, there was only one. Like Full Blast, so I'd go to Full Blast and I'd buy records there. But then once Full Blast kind of closed, mm-hmm. there was like only really one game in town for like trying to buy big ticket punk items. And, and you know, it was a crapshoot if you were going to be allowed to buy them. I mean, and plus, like, you know, I did, if you're that age and you're getting into punk, you know, you, you'd never think, oh, I'm just going to go to a record store in Scarborough or I'm going to go to some place in Park, you know, like. You wouldn't mm-hmm. just go to a record store and expect that you're going to find that stuff. You'd think, why would I go in there? It, well, that's they, won't, they won't have anything. I and like. that's when we started doing it. Yeah. Because it was like, fuck, well, I can't get records from this guy. Yeah. I'm going to start going and looking around. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started hitting, like, Rick's Collectibles. And yeah. And we started hitting, like, uh, Cops Vortex and just harassing them to get, you know, come on, get the Punk 45 to the warehouse. Yeah. And these places had this stuff. But, like, you was, like, really, like... You know, no one appreciated the, the value of, the, of punk records at that point. And, you know, actually, the, the record landscape in Toronto was a lot different then, too. Yeah. Like, you'd have play, they're also, like, the vestigial tale of the Toronto of the 80s and 70s was still kind of alive and well. There were all these sort of bohemian, grotty shops. Young Street was a completely different place in the yeah. mid, mid to late 90s, and there were record stores lining. Yeah, creepy record stores. Creepy yeah. record stores. You never know. And then, like, of course... Queen Street East and West and yeah. like you know little places and there were, and also like the stuff that was like special specialty boutiques like Rotate yeah um, Full Blast when Full Blast was gone uh, you know, Record Peddler too but uh, Record Peddler but there was like, only that brief period where yeah. they found a box of like really fire where they were bringing stuff Simon was kind of digging stuff out when he was working there yeah um, but yeah like he, but everything else was like 
like uh, Rare Groove mm-hmm. and Funk and Soul. Yeah. And those were the records that people, like in jazz records, were records that people thought had value. And the punk records, like, just didn't. And I remember eventually, 2001, September the 12th, 2001, going to Cops Vortex on, on Queen Street and the guy being like, we got those punk records from the warehouse. You can have 100 records for $100. I remember this day. And I gave the guy the hundred dollars, and it was just like the best day. Yeah, that's, the best day. I remember thinking that that was just the most insane story I've ever heard because you had there were some Danger House records yep. in there. Yeah, Danger House, like Arson, like Bureaucrats, like yeah, like you you got some records for a dollar that paid for the whole box. Oh, definitely. If you needed to. Yeah, definitely, especially today's prices. Yeah, yeah. and that stuff. Um, so, do, but it was it was a lot of work, right? And then also you'd find records like Bunny and the Lakers. Yeah, like finding that record and no one knew about it, and then eventually people started finding out about it internationally. And you're like, I got three of these things, and people really want them because it's from where I'm from. From like, where I'm from, yeah. and no one, and also no one cared. Mm-hmm. You know, like no one cared. It is a really like particular form of consumption, record collecting, yeah. in, in the sense that it's actually like a, it's a. It's like a history-making activity because people then all of a sudden keep keep the narrative, they keep the context, and they put the story together. Mm-hmm. Because you, you know, when you go into a record store, there's fifty thousand records in there. It's staggering to imagine the amount of music that's going to be unheard. The last time I was mm-hmm. in Rick's, uh, I went with Mike. Actually, we went out for like this is God no five six years ago, but uh, he called me up and he's like, "We should go to Rick's and let's get some Soul 45s. I said, that's a good idea. We go out and there's just. From from about the floor to just above your knee, piles of forty fives with no sleeves. It's yeah. just like an immense amount of music. And think, like, what's in there? So what? What? Who are all these people making music? But to, to think that you know, when people buy them, they create this wonderful thread that pins through time. Yeah, it's like a, such a gift, you know. Well, like a, it, that book uh, cranked up really high, the Stuart Holm book. Yeah, there's that whole chapter about Kill My Death and like, you know through record collecting you have the birth of a genre like these bands weren't appreciated the first time around Mm. you know and now as through collectors they become appreciated so much so that some of these bands wound up getting back together reissuing their records putting out new material in some cases not for the best in some cases but like Look at Zolar X. Yeah. Zolar X got a whole secondary run out of like becoming a record collector band. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of simply saucer too. Simply saucer, you're right. Like uh, crime, queers, queers. Yeah, you know, like all these bands that kind of had this run because people, you know, went back and discovered these records that were kind of like given up upon. Yeah, I mean, I think that the people that bought them were the kind of people that would spend time in the shops, not the kind of people that like passively consume music, right? But even then, I think the people that bought them, it's almost like they didn't necessarily appreciate them because it was just part of the landscape you mm-hmm. know it's almost like you needed the people that didn't get them the first time around like mm-hmm. the Johan Kugelbergs mm-hmm. you know coming from Sweden finding all this stuff and like kind of constructing this narrative of American punk rock underground out of the bands that didn't make it and and uh, Ryan Richardson Ryan Richardson because he's like basically he uh, ended up being kind of an ethnographer in some yeah. sense of the word because he went and did all this you know, this is elevating it maybe, but field work, you know. Yeah, no, he did. He definitely you did. Know, he he like, met the people. He went to jail Went to jail to visit people, yeah, you know, and like yeah, Ryan, knocking on doors. and Ryan Richardson definitely is like a, 
I guess it all comes from like the those Aste collectors, like Robert Crumb mm-hmm. does like comic strips about him, where you just go knocking on people's doors asking mm-hmm. to buy their old acetates. And John Fahey was like that too. Yeah, from what I hear. Yeah, just going around trying to get this stuff from yeah. people and. And, uh, but this is also like an amazing thing about the living memory of music where pe- the people are still alive mm-hmm. and the people who can tell you who was around and what was happening and then you it's up to you to sort of tell them what's happened since they since s- then, yeah. shut off yeah like or, or like you know to put them into the picture right like you know like that vile reissue that came out mm-hmm. you know like here's this band that just like was a myth mm-hmm. and then they reissued it and you read the line notes and you're like wow no, they weren't really nice people. <laughs> yeah, they were. They seemed sort of nasty as hell. Really nasty people. But they, like you say, they've been put in the picture. They're part of the. If somebody's now, like, yeah. oh yeah, and then the vile record came out, as yeah. if it's as important as you know whatever a different record. But it puts it in like the perspective of like where they sat in the scene, yeah. and it and it changes the history of music, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they, they definitely with the uh, with record collecting, you kind of wind up finding a way to. You know, like a curator in a library, or a curator in a museum would, or a librarian in a library, you know, by what you choose to put in your collection, uh, you kind of write your own history of punk rock. Have you ever, like, uh, have you ever lost friends over record collecting? Uh, probably Mike and Ryan at different times, you know. <laughs> this is amazing, though, because the Mike, Ryan, Damien trifecta is, like, sort of really long-standing, so it's like yeah. the birth of a scene, the birth of a nation, the death of <laughs> the death of friends through consumption. No, we Ryan and I eventually had a big falling out, but it wasn't over records for a little bit, but then uh, it was over me being an idiot. <laughs> um, and then we became tighter again uh, years later, probably in Australia on the Foo Fighters tour. Oh, yeah, I was on the that's tour right, that's right. Um, but yeah, like we were super tight. I don't think I don't think I have. I definitely have uh, made friends because of record collecting. Well, I would say that's a given. You know, a lot of a lot of our, a lot of the early tours were kind of like built around record collecting. Uh, music. Did you ever think you were going to play music? No. You thought you were just going to buy music, yeah, or like buy be, be part of be part of like a, like a scene stir or something. Yeah, yeah. Like was, not no. Saying a scene stir was sort of like saying an enemy. No, that's kind of what I think I wanted, wanted to be. Yeah. You know, like I wanted to be a guy who did a radio show, or you know, found a way to contribute to the scene, but at the same time, like maybe played in like a band that had a cool seven inch. Mm-hmm. You know, that like. I was like, oh, how much did that band? That how I much did record collecting inform? I mean, I know we've probably talked about this with fucked up about how record collecting, of course, did inform decisions that we made on how to release our music, yeah. you know, format wise. But you know, how much did records influence your life as a performer, as a musician, as the idea that you're creating the content? Because I think that actually, you, even though you're a person for people to 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 like attach to when they're cons- when they're getting interested in fucked up and when they're seeing fucked up. Uh, I think you do straddle this thing in between where you, you're kind of, even as a, a, a representative of the group, you know, you're like, you're still consuming music all the time through the yeah. band. Yeah, like I always find it weird, like, when people in bands don't consume music. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, how do you expect other people to do it if you don't even do it? Um, but, yeah, like, I think the... Uh, I think, like, fucked up, if you really kind of, like, get down to what started from, it was, like, the political stuff was Josh and Mike's relationship, mm-hmm. and the music stuff was Mike, mine relationship, yeah. and 
you know, ultimately you you ultimately become the person that can give voice to this. But like at the time, like it was just like us fiending and nerding over records. Like, like why do all these non-commercial records seem so cool? Mm. And like, why does this like distort record look so much sicker than this other record? And like, why is Danger House so cool to collect? Why is Poison Idea? You know, so we were like doing the punk theory and Josh and Mike were doing the political theory stuff mm. at the time. And then, you know, I wasn't even the singer of Fuck the at first, but when I joined the band, it yeah. felt like those were the two kind of like things at play. And no, it and was and You were all living in the same house as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is, it's an... Or Josh moved in when I moved out. Was there not a time when basically everybody except me and Ben lived under the same roof at Roxton? I don't think so. I think like... Sandy had moved out and I had moved out by the time Josh moved in mm. but I might be mistaken on that it is kind of a, an amazing prospect not prospect it's a a concept which betrays reality to imagine that for all the sort of like difficulty of being under the same roof as a group of six people on the road because you know yeah. it, it's just any band the six individual people it's sometimes it gels sometimes it doesn't right you yeah. need your space but you live together. You live together with like the person you were like the most creative with at that time. That's kind of an. I mean, it, it's like a supercharging of the project, really. Yeah, we only lived together for like a minute. It felt like in the band. Did you find that, you know, like living together made you work more on the band, or was we're it just, just like we're living it? Yeah, like we're living, just like punk rock. Mm. Not like punk rock, and sort of like. We were just like whipping fridges through the window. Yeah, we were like going, we were like trying to, we were going to the UFT music library and taking out all these books about punk Mm -hmm. and just going home and just researching this stuff and like putting pieces together and hearing songs for the first time and like just, yeah, just being about it. Like I was probably supposed to be in school at that point, but I was Mm -hmm. just like, this was my school. The, uh, is the fucked up tag. Still in the laneway near Roxton? I don't know. You think it's still there? I don't think so. I think I walked through it looking for it one time and couldn't yeah. find it. Yeah, like that that was that whole photo shoot kinda came from like us just talking about what would like an ideal photo shoot look like. Yeah. And we're like, okay, we'll, we'll rip off the minor threat one. Mm-hmm. We'll do a photo like I had in this art magazine and that's the cover of Epics and Minutes. Mm-hmm. Just trying to style a photo like that. Mm-hmm. And then Caleb came over and shot all that stuff in that one afternoon. Um and it was yeah, like it felt like it felt it felt really cool, fucked up because like we were kind of developing our own aesthetic too, mm-hmm. um, and then we'd have the aesthetic ruined because someone would make a mistake <laughs> along the way. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to ma- maintain a unified front, you know. Yeah, we definitely. Uh, I don't know. It, it's amazing when you think back to, like. You know, career suicide is really just you and Martin. Yeah. Right? And then, like, obviously other people have now changed it when people join the band, the dynamic changes. But, like, we've stayed together. Like, the the five of us. Am I bleeding? Yeah, you're bleeding. Yeah. From there? From my ankle. Oh, fuck. Ew. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) This interview just is very fucking intense. I've started... Seeping, my wounds are irrigating. 
it's like a stigmata thing going on in here. If there was anyone else, would we have been able to stick together? No, yeah. Like, was there anyone, like, like who could we have put in morale men in this band and the dynamic could have stayed the same when we're all still here? Yeah, it's true. Like, I don't know. That's yeah. The, it's the perfect, perfect storm. Because we're the last one. Yeah, it's true. Like, surviving. Like, once again, CS, no original members. Uh, and then you and Martin from the MK2 lineup. Yeah. Or MK1 is, MK2 is Martin, but yeah. MK3 is you. Yeah, yeah. But career suicide is even different, too, because it's like, even though we formed at the same time as Fucked Up, we're kind of coming from two different scenes, like, and two different, I mean, Martin has a much more similar musical trajectory as you, getting into it through Sonic Youth and Nirvana and stuff like that, whereas I'm, I'm a little younger, so. I remember bringing Martin to Mods and Rockers for the first time. Yeah. Because he was like this like Nirvana dude. Yeah, I remember I him already, in high school. I was already the, deep into like the punk thing. Yeah. This Nirvana dude. <laughs> he was like the Nirvana dude. What is what is the modern equivalent of a Nirvana dude? Uh, a ghost main guy. Ghost main guy. That'll <laughs> <laughs> be like a little peeper. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Man, it's it, it's insane to think like how um you know, how little you thought you you had to do to like stick out as a teenager, I guess in Toronto, yeah. you know, like hair dye, yeah, like a temporary thing. And kids now are getting hand tattoos and face tattoos, and it's like no big deal. I, yeah, there was like, it's like a weird continuation of like a really hardcore. You I know, remember walking down the street with a t shirt that said Jesus should have been aborted. You had that shirt, yeah, nice. Okay, that's pretty good. It was a Snoopy record shirt, and it was just like, man, I can't picture someone wearing that today, yeah. No, I can't. I mean, when you see people wearing like that, it is kind of more confrontational. But like shock, it's yeah. not. It's not about us. I mean, well, shock is like a dangerous thing now because it's like we're not a dangerous thing. Well, you, now it's different. Like you don't do shock anymore. Yeah. Like that was the point. Like then you could just be shocking. Now it's like everyone has been shocked, and the only thing left is to offend. Yeah, and but like, and offense and shock are different. Different. Yeah, exactly. Different. But like, but that's that's the thing that people like. Like, back then, things hadn't all been seen, so you could still be shocking without being offensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now it just seems like the only way to shock people is by offending them, which is once ultimately, yeah, not the same. Yeah, not the same. And also, it's like this sort of, as if it was overstating by using this word, but this sort of, like, violence of offense. It's like... Uh, being shocking is less targeted, you know, like offending someone is really bad, like humiliation and, and mm-hmm. like um, tearing, picking the, the ground out from a person's feet, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, well, I think ultimately it's about attacking someone's world mm-hmm. and their worldview. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, like, and, and, you know, be offensive or shocking, like you're attacking, mm-hmm. you know, something that someone holds dear. Um, especially, and it, at the time, it was people's like moral, mm. you know, like fabric that you were like eroding by shaving your head or by having a piercing or dyeing your hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and but now, like ever, you've seen all that. Yeah, like, of everyone's course. got tattoos. Yeah, well, those, those things have become normal. Uh, but you know, it is it's interesting, like what to do, not what to do, because you don't. It's not necessary to shock or offend to make something that's that is shocking i mean if uh, offense is also 
it's a subjective thing in some cases like how a person is offended is like uh, in terms of like upsetting somebody's morality or whatever yeah. but you know like I went and I saw Ghost Mane and it was like it looked to obviously I'm old and I dress conservatively but you know it was sh- shocking to me in the sense that like I didn't re- I didn't understand and these people are making decisions that even in my years of being around punks and having crazy experiences and doing dumb st- stuff like I just couldn't find myself coming to the same conclusions as these people mm. and that is the, that's the thing when you think that everything's exhausted you just realize that actually when the generation gap occurs this is always going to be the most shocking and most offensive thing because you can't relate to how people make decisions you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. and and that's that's an, when that bleeds into music production you get this really interesting clash and it takes a particular kind of person to understand the context of that and we're ta- like we're talking about record collecting and like putting the pieces together like. well, I think it, well you know also that's that's all old world now mm. you don't you don't have to put the pieces together anymore right now you just have to stand out like you don't have to like figure out how it all fits together you just kind of make your own space within that but I think it does fit together eventually. Like it does definitely, and, it's, and it fits together a lot faster dude, than like, it did, like, you know, twenty years ago. I think, mean, like, look at Sherwin. Like, look at that dude, yeah. and look at his involvement in like these dudes' careers mm-hmm. now. Like, roading with these bands, and like, you directly connect that dude to Iron Age. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the wildest bands. Yeah. Going. You yeah. Know, like, I wonder for I bet you for him, like the wildest shit he sees on tour, it probably pales in comparison to like. The average Watertown <laughs> show with Iron Age. I, I would say yes. I mean, the, the tours that we did with Iron Age are some of the favorite music experiences I've ever had. Yeah. They were the tightest band doing really ambitious stuff and the wildest set of personalities. Yeah. And it was, again, like that group of people could not have been any other group I, of people. See, would, even though there's been a couple swaps, but like. I would love to read an Iron Age book. You know, I would love to read. Like a sex vid book. Mm. Uh, I don't think a fucked up book would be terribly interesting because I think we as people are all like pretty, you know, and this is coming from me who's like a freak, but like we're all pretty <laughs> level headed compared to no, no. some of these people that we've the, hung out the, with. The, the difference between a band like Iron Age or Sex Vid and Fucked Up is that like uh, our ideas are big, <laughs> but our personalities are kind of, you know inaccessible and and kind of average on the outside whereas their ideas are also big but their personalities are larger than fucking life yeah you know what i mean and that you know like again i can't i couldn't come to the conclusions that those people came to some of the time but because i'm just too much of a weenie but like you know yeah but you also like your wild scene was in virginia well yeah i mean i had other groups of friends like coming to Europe when I was 20 on that first career, first tour I ever did was like, you know, I got off a plane and didn't get picked up by somebody because they had gone to jail that night. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell have I gotten into? And like, so I had these conceptions of like what a crazy life was like, but I, I was on the outside. I wasn't living it, you know, I was, yeah. I was living with it, not in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like we, uh, I don't know, like it feels like fucked up. It took like a perfect set of circumstances to like lead it to here. <laughs> here, by the way, is Hamburg, Germany, on the final day of our European tour. Yep. 
lying beside each other again. Yeah. This 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 particular instance, we're separated by a solid foot yeah. of space. Uh, Last night, it was like a solid... It was like a millimeter. Three quarters of an inch. And I came home uh, steaming drunk at 5.30 in the morning. So I apologize for that. It was a little okay. close quarters. It was okay. I had, I had eaten a pizza and a half, so I was writhing in indigestion agony. If there's any uh, you know book contract people listening to this, yeah, this is you the might book. want to like just this is just a, the tip of the iceberg. This is the way you want to read stories about snoring, <laughs> stories about you know loading equipment. Like I think yeah, like there's there's definitely been some wild times in the band and like some weird stories, but I think the reason we were able to survive this long is because our reactions to these wild times are very level headed. <clears throat> You know, like, yeah, Russian dude stopping us on the middle of the highway in Germany when we have a flat tire and having a rave party. <laughs> and then that. And us just sitting in the van, like, being like, let's just watch this unfold. Yeah, everybody. Uh, and then Ben surreptitiously filming them and then getting ripped out of the passenger window. And us yeah. having to hold on to his ankles to pull him back in the car as he de-escalated the situation, you know, hanging halfway out of a van window. Well, see, ben, Ben's from a, a different world, too. <laughs> well, Ben getting in the band was like bringing a, like a, a louder personality into a group of like kind of reticent yeah. people, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, he would take more chances, I think, than some of us would have over the years. Maybe now it's different, I think, but uh, that was interesting. Yeah, the uh, we'll be back for you statement as three cars full of hammered, like, Russian football hooligans blasting donk on the side of a road in Germany, in north northeastern Germany, Farm Road, as we were looking for our motel, which was a decommissioned airstrip. And that didn't have any rooms for us in the end. Yeah, it was completely closed. We stayed in a nice hotel that night, I remember. We stayed in a beautiful hotel that night. Cost us probably like... Yeah, like at least a the, of, the day's gig fee, yeah, probably. Money for the tour. It's a lovely free breakfast oh. and uh, beside the raging banks of the, the, the something. Yeah. Well, buddy... I think we should probably get to sleep. Let's get to sleep. Damien, what a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, my friend. That was that was lovely. Will you come do me a part two? Anytime, man. You let oh. me know. All right, thanks. Bud. See you for episode 400. Thank you, Jonah, for coming on the show and interviewing me. Jonah, of course, can be heard in Career Suicide. He's in Fucked Up. He's in Game. He's in... A lot of other bands. He is extremely talented. He can be found on various forms of social media. Just search Jonah Falco. He first, he's the first one that comes up. I think it's at Jonah 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 on Instagram and at Jonah Falco on Twitter. Uh, look it up. Look it up. He is there. Or check out his bands. He's in all these bands too. Or come see him at shows. You know, he, he's a great guy. And as you can hear right there, a really fun guy to talk to. I, of course, will be back on the show each and every week because I have nowhere else to go. And hopefully Jonah will be back for a part two where I will interview him as is the normal mode of the show. Well, as this is not a normal show in as far as its mode, we will continue on with the abnormality continuing with a, uh, discussion, I guess, before we get to the, uh, the, the next guest, why don't we do this Patreon discussion? Patreon, of course, as some of you know, many of you know, all of you know probably by this point, if you listen to podcasts, it's a way of you 
supporting this show directly. This is a cool way for me to give you incentives such as additional podcasts, additional merch, content, things like that in exchange for money. That allows me to expand this show and complete a lot of goals, including additional Turned Out of Punk episodes is one of my things that I want to try and start doing each and every week. I want to eventually do a a zine, a record label, all these kind of things with Turned Out of Punk. But that, of course, requires you and your support uh, for this thing. Uh, So I have devised a Patreon with different tiers, different levels of incentives. But as I said off the top, nothing is changing with Turned Out of Punk, the podcast itself. If anything, I'm trying to add more of that. Turned Out of Punk footnotes, however, will now be a once-monthly show called the Footnotes Super Show. And that will be free in the stream, and then the footnotes episodes where we dissect each and every individual episode, those will now be part of the Patreon. You can read all about that over at patreon.com slash turnedoutapunk. I will have, well, I know I do have tons of things up there, including tiers where you can get merch, tiers where you can get additional content, even a ridiculous tier where I interview you, Turned Out a Punk style. You know, so if you if you really want that and if you're so inclined, by God, there is now a way for you to achieve that. You will see that over there on the Patreon. But that's not this week. That all comes out next week. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a, a, you know, a thing to get excited about, thing to look forward to next week on the show. Well, I'm not going to blather on any more about stuff that's happening in the future. I'm going to talk now about stuff that's happening in the present. Right now, I am going to turn it over to a conversation I had with Mr. Jack Black. Jack was on the show earlier this year, and we had an incredible conversation wherein I showed him a photograph of a person who was purported to be himself moshing for the band Visual Discrimination. Jack said he could neither confirm nor deny that it was himself because he just didn't know. Well, we got additional information here at the show and I wanted to confront Jack with the additional facts that we had received and also some other questions that I'd forgot to ask him the first time he was on. I told him we were doing an episode 200. He said, well, why don't I come back on for that? And here you go. This is a really great treat. And, you know, let's be honest, Part two with Jack Black, that's probably not forthcoming anytime soon, though this will serve as the part two with Jack Black for the time being and for the foreseeable future. So here is Jack Black on Turn Out a Punk, episode 200, to further investigate whether or not there is a photo of him moshing for the hardcore California punk legends, visual discrimination. Jack, thank you for coming back to the show. Of course. Well, I just... I'm back. You are back with a vengeance, my friend. And I didn't feel like I could safely transition into the post-episode 200 era, era yeah. without asking you some, uh, some like, hanging chads of questions that I have left over. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you reached out. I don't want any hanging chads. <laughs> no, sir. Well, that also brings me to, since you were last on the show... I feel like we've seen Jack Black turn a little more jello by Afra. 
Say that again. Well, I think I think you, you've turned a little more jello by Afro. You've gotten a little more political as of late. Or I've just oh yeah, watched, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I I I'd like to think that was maybe um, a part of this show bringing out your punk rock side and not the terrible state of the world we're in right now. I'll give you I'll give you ten percent. Ten percent is good enough. You know, I was I mean, you weren't looking for like fifty fifty split. Hell no, hell no. I have to. I have to be the captain of my own uh, voyage. Absolutely. No, I just want to know that we were, we're in the stew somewhere. We're just like, we're like a little bit of salt on top. You definitely lit a fire. You <laughs> definitely lit a fire. <laughs> well, that makes me feel awesome. Uh, speaking of awesome, though, uh, yeah. I never asked you last time about being on one of my favorite shows ever, one of my first favorite TV shows ever, Fall Guy. Uh-oh. Oh, Yeah. Fall Guy. That was like my first real gig, kind of. Like uh, acting in a show with a plot, with a beginning, middle, and end. But, um, yeah, it was a flashback to when uh, Lee Major's character on that show was a kid. <laughs> and I was trying to turn him, I was like his best friend that was trying to turn him to a life of crime to uh, steal some baseball mitts from the local sporting goods store. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the role. It was a major uh, stepping stone for me because my favorite show growing up was $6 million Man. Mm -hmm. so, so I went in to audition for that, for, for the, the fall guy, and I got to meet Lee Majors, and I kicked ass in the audition. <laughs> and he gave me the part. So it was, like, extra special. It was like I had been anointed by... The Bionic Man. Absolutely. Well, like you seem to play bad guys a lot because after you were on the show, someone sent in uh, a screen capture of you playing kind of like a punk rocker on the show. Life goes on. That's right. Uh, yeah, I guess I had a uh, a little bit of a devilish look. Uh, <laughs> yes, a little, a little mischievousness as as a kid that uh, that got me some of those good uh, baddie baddie roles. Also, a little known nugget, um, Never Ending Story Part 3. I play a skinhead um, uh, gang leader. Very scary uh, uh, role. What were, the, what were your inspirations for these characters like then? Because, you, you, you know, like, not saying you're not a tough guy uh, or anything, but, but at the same time, you're one of the sweetest human beings I've ever met. So what's, who were the inspirations for these scary skinheads and punks you were playing? I'm trying to think back if I used any kind of like uh, anyone as uh, as a model uh, to build a character, and I, I don't think I was real deep into the research back then. Yeah, I think I was just going off the top of my head and like, well, you know, uh, who who would have been the the rad baddies back in the day? You know, I saw this uh, this m movie when I was a kid. Um, what was that movie? It was like set in the fifties and it was about gangs, gangsters, not gangsters, but like young skinhead gangs. Oh man. I think it was from the UK. A, a British uh, film in the sixties about skinhead gangs. No, it was, it would have been, it was set in the fifties or sixties. Oh God. I can't remember what it was, but I will find this out though. This will be my next round of research. Uh, it was kind of like the UK's answer to, um, uh, the, what was that one with 
that fucking shit. Can't remember shit. The Outsiders. Yes, thank you. It was like the UK's answer to the Outsiders. Not Quadrophenia. No. Um, I will find this out. I will fix this in the intro for this segment, and I will. Thank you. I will get this, but that that would have been kind of like an inspiration. I was just wondering, like, because you know, you're the the shows you would have gone to would have had some of the tougher elements of Southern California, if not all American hardcore and punk rock. I mean, just thinking about it now, I was like, the the only skinheads I was really familiar with were like uh, Suicidal Tendencies. Yep. But uh, I'm trying to think of some other like good examples of, of my Southern California skinhead experience. Nothing's coming to mind, really. Well, this brings me to why I really need you on the show is because I think we have more information on the great mystery of whether or not that was a photograph of you moshing at that show way back when. I have uh, now, thanks to, once again, uh, a listener who who was very, very excited about the fact that we had uncovered this information, sent in a flyer for the show that he thinks it might have been. And it turns out yeah. the show would have been headlined by Bad Religion. Jack, do you remember going to see Bad Religion at oh, the country shit. club? Oh, shit. No. <laughs> that, I, I would have remembered that. <laughs> I wonder if that was if that was pre Brooks Wackerman bad religion. Or oh, it would have been way yeah. Bro- that would have been, been way pre. That would have been pre Brooks being in suicidal too. It would have been it would have been OG lineup. OG lineup. It would have been very very early on. I don't think so. Okay, I'm sorry, man. I really want to I want to give you that closure. I, no, Jack. I just want the truth. That's what I'm here for, man. And I, as long as you give us the truth, then we we are very happier, and we will continue to dig. And one day we will find, you know, well, maybe we'll go back in time. We'll have a time machine, and we'll be able to go I back. Think, I think there was a purple headed, purple haired punk rock chick who was uh, slamming and stage diving. Uh, that that's just one more piece of information for you. That's okay. coming back to me now. Okay, well, then we, we are closer to discovering whether or not that photograph of that guy moshing is of yourself. Um, another thing, uh, Heat Vision and Jack, an unbelievable yeah. pilot that never went. It was just a pilot, right, for TV? That's right. That's, that's right. The one, of the, one of the ones that got away. Well, I, you know, I've seen a very poor quality bootleg copy of it years ago, but yeah. when my kids and I were discovering Yo Gabba Gabba and the brilliance that is Yo Gabba Gabba, on yeah. on your episode, you emerge on a talking motorcycle. Was that a nod to Heat Vision and Jack? Of course it was. It was? I mean, of course. Uh-huh. I mean, in my mind it was. You'd have to ask Christian. You 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 know uh you know any of the, the Yo Gabba Gabba peeps? I, I was I've danced on stage for them before and yeah, so- I've talked to them on the phone before. So that but I I have definitely consumed more hours of their content than anything else in yeah. my life, I think. I don't remember what the conversation was, but I, I remember thinking, well, obviously this is a nod to Heat Vision and Jack. Um, but um, I was basically just doing what they told me. It wasn't my idea to do that, but mm-hmm. yeah, the talking motorcycle. Dude, Dan Harmon, Rob Schraub, who are, are now like... Dan Harmon has the most popular 
animated show on television now. Have you watched any of the the Rick and Morty's? Yeah, no, it's well, and also it's oh. Rick and, it's crossed over now. It's like I would say just like a pop culture phenomena. Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, stoked to be part of his uh, pre Rick and Morty history because that's uh, an amazing accomplishment that he's gone on to do since then. What an amazing show! It's like you, Ben Stiller, him, Owen Wilson, Crazy. right? Yes, yeah, Owen Wilson as the voice of of the motorcycle, which is the easiest gig. He's barely in it yeah. when you think of like he he was there for like a a half hour in the recording studio. But still, <laughs> yes, it kind of it technically counts as a collaboration between me and Owen Wilson. But um. <laughs> Yeah, that was a uh, that was a heartbreaker. I really wanted that to get picked up to series because once again, it had my favorite element from childhood, the six million dollar man. It, it owed a lot to that that uh, that Bionic Man nineteen seventies uh, magic. You know what I mean? Absolutely, it had a real kind of I don't know. It would have been like a real fun show to see it go to network, but it felt definitely ahead of its time. Yeah, maybe now. Well, one last question, Jack, that's been burning a, a hole in my brain for, for years. Since yeah. since I saw Heat Vision and Jack way back when in like the year 2000, mm. was when you guys were making Enemy of the State, mm-hmm. did you view it as a follow-up to the conversation? Um, you like, know. Were you guys talking about that at all? About how Gene Hackman's kind of playing the same, like a, like a, you know, a continuation of that character? Yeah, that was floated, is that that's what it was. It was a sequel to The Conversation, but it's so different in tone and style. Oh, yeah. Even though <laughs> even though he is technically the same character, I don't think of it as a sequel to The Conversation at all. I personally. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's a fun, like, popcorn thriller, but The Conversation is a work of art. Yeah. They're, 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 they're two different things completely. Like well, you, you could compare it to if you wanted to, you could compare it to like the color of money as a sequel to, to uh, uh, the, the, the hustler. The, the, oh yeah, the hustler. That's it. Sorry. Which is like that that those are, but that's closer to to staying true to the original intent. You know, when you yeah. got Scorsese picking up where the old classic left off. But even then, it's like so much time has passed and. They are such different films. It doesn't really work. I've never said it, it. You can't make a sequel 30 years later and expect it to, to track properly. Did you see that uh, Wizard of Oz sequel? Or is it uh, a prequel? No, that, that was, I think it was a sequel, right? Because they talk about all the characters being dead, I think, at one yeah. point. Man, that was fucking surreal. That, that was, was like surreal. 60 years later. Yeah. Or was it more? I think it was... When did, it, when did the, the OG 89? was like 1931? Yeah, and then the other one's 89, I think, or 90, maybe? No way, dude. 99. I think that was post-2000, bro. No, no, no. I think you're off. You're off by, like, fucking 20 years, bro. No, I was scared of it in the theater. So I I think it might have come out last year. I think it might be a 2007 (laughs) to 18. (laughs) I'm I'm checking this out right now. I think it was 80 years, dude. I think it was an 80 years later. Okay. I'll bet you... Uh, a star on the Walk of Fame. Oh, damn it, my computer's not loading with it. It doesn't want me to prove you wrong. Uh, it's so, it's, I'm so right on this one. 
I thought I was bad at dates. Dude, you are off by decades. <laughs> I'm off by years, but you. Well, and I, I, like, I... You thought it was in the 80s. Dude, I don't even think... What's his name? Who's in that? No, it's 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 what's her name from uh from um oh man, my mind's going the craft, right? She plays the the kid in it. Return to Oz, nineteen eighty five, Jack, nineteen eighty five. Oh no, no, dude, we're thinking of two different sequels. No, we're thinking of the same one with Frozen. No, bro, no, we're not. We're thinking of two different. Se- James Franco was in a, a sequel to The Wizard of Oz as oh, well. Oh, yeah. No, that's that. I think that's the prequel. I'm talking about the sequel, which was like okay. But when was the prequel? How long ago was the James Franco? Prequel? You're right. The James Franco one was like like three years so ago. recently. Yeah, really recently. Sorry. All right. Yeah. Well, that was a problem. <laughs> Breakdown of communication. The Feruza Balk. Yeah. Are, I think maybe you're the only one who saw that film. <laughs> it's, it's, it was a. Uh, I had no knowledge of that sequel. You got to see that sequel. It is very weird. Like that is almost like. If like Tim Burton was given the reins to direct the sequel to uh, to The Wizard of Oz, Walter Munch, uh, Walter Murch did the uh, wrote the screenplay and directed it. Oh, dude! You know what? We should maybe look through the classics and and think about doing some sequels to to break <laughs> the record. I've always thought Citizen Kane could do with him waking up and finding the sled. <laughs> That's true, dude. He didn't die at the end, did he? Oh, yes, he did. Well, no, he just passes out. He just passes out. I'm so dumb. I'm so dumb. Of course he dies in the end. Spoiler alert. Citizen Kane dies at the end. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, but I was thinking maybe maybe we fucking get busy with like a Casablanca sequel. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Casablanca deuce. Because then it was like the Nazis were coming to get Humphrey Bogart. And this time, Trump is coming to get Humphrey's grandson. Damien Bogart. <laughs> Things writing itself, bro. Dude, you write me in this movie. I'm, I'm acting in it. Well, I, though I do think, Jack, we can't talk about future projects and future movies without talking about one day. Dude, you know I what hope. I think it's called? You know what it's called? What's it called? Casablinski. It's kind of like Jablinski, but it's Casablanca. Casablinski. <laughs> I, I, my, my dream though is for you to one day do. That Rocky Erickson movie that we talked about way back when. Oh shit! Yeah, that's uh, that seems like a a magical project that's never going to happen. Nope. But I dream yeah. it. I dream. Never it. You, say never. Well, I could, I think you could sing those songs. Like that's the thing is like it's the trick is finding someone who can hold the role, but then also nail the vocal part. Yeah, the later years, the later years, jams. Evil one, the best um, record of all time. Uh yeah, all the all the monsters. Oh. Um. Uh again. Uh, two headed dog, two headed dog. I've been searching in the Kremlin for a two headed dog. I would oh settle God, for a dude. Tenacious D Rocky Erickson tribute record. To be honest, I'm searching in the Kremlin for a two. These are as current as today's headlines. I know exactly. Like that's the thing is like we are now living in the evil one era. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's terrifying. Well, Jack, I can't keep you any longer because I have already infringed enough forcing you to come back so quickly after your part one. But thank you for addressing these burning questions. I wonder how Rocky's feeling about the current political climate. I wonder if he's if he's watching a lot of MSNBC like me. I try to watch five hours a day. 
That's five hours my, a day. Yeah, yeah. At least. <laughs> They've got like a fucking five-hour block. If you start at like three in the afternoon, you can go solid till midnight. <laughs> and just watch nothing but terrifying news headlines. It's so bad for you. I mean, so it's bad. just a thing. And they're all saying the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to, to be honest with you, I do I do tape five hours of it, but I do fast forward through it all. I I, uh, I just look for certain certain uh, pundits that I'll stop I'll, I'll stop and and listen to them, and then I'll scoot through because it's too much for a brain to take. It's a, it's a terrifying time that we're now living in a world that like you know prophesized by Rocky Erickson and Bad Religion. Exactly. Um, and it's and also getting... don't forget uh, Mike Judge with uh, that thing where the the wrestler becomes a president. Yeah, absolutely, idiocracy. He, he prophesied it. He fucking prophesied it for reals. That's why they didn't let that movie come out in theaters because they knew that he knew. Well, whenever someone's ahead of their time like that, it never really lands right when it first comes out. Yeah, that's you, true. You got to wait. You got to wait a decade or so. That's true, because it really feels like that with Tenacious D, right? Like, it took well less than 10 years, but, like, when it first came out on TV, it didn't really hit, right? <sighs> no, I have to disagree. It hit pretty good for us. Oh, we you were got on some... the map. So, yeah, we went from zero to 60. It was pretty exciting for us. We were packing big big rooms. Uh, big for us, anyway. But, yeah, we've had some staying. We've had some staying power over the years. But the thing is... um. What was I going to say? Staying power? Something about the end. Something, no, it was something about the end of the world. Um, scary times. <laughs> MSNBC. Donald Trump. Mike Judge. Oh, things that... Kasablinski. Things that take 10 years. Ah, fuck it. I can't remember. Hey, Damien, man. Jack. It's great to talk to you. Unbelievable to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope we created enough closure. I'm sorry that I can I can't confirm or deny still whether or not that's me in that punk rock photo. That's okay because like you know what? There's some mysteries that are are better left unsolved, right? Like yeah. this gives us a reason to continue on in the world that's so depressing. Thank you, Jack, for coming back on the show. And if you don't hear it right there, let me assure you, Jack is one of the coolest people on the planet. Every time he comes on the show, I am just reminded of that fact. So thank you, Jack, for being here and for uh, yeah, giving us credit, giving us some credit, a little bit of credit in your political awakening and for... You know, that's all we want here. Just a little bit of credit. We don't want a lot. Just a little bit. Well, speaking of a little bit of credit, up next, I'm going to be having on John Pollock and Waiting, who I do have to give more than a little bit of credit for inspiring me to head down the path to make a podcast and to do a podcast like this. They are the hosts of Post Wrestling. It is a 
wrestling podcast. And I know for some of you, that sounds like a very alien concept. For others of you, that sounds like something you already listen to a lot, like myself. John Pollock and Waiting have been doing it for years. They're people that I met. Well, we, we go into it all here, but they're two guys that I loved sitting down and talking to about wrestling. Way, of course, has been on this podcast in the past and was actually going to be the original co-host of this thing. We talk about that in a second as well. John Pollock, however, he was probably not going to make it onto this show uh, at any point because he has radically different tastes in music. And I don't mean that in a in a horrible political way. I mean that in a horrible musical way. He has very, very different tastes that do not necessarily jive with uh, what we're trying to talk about on this show. But at the same time, I love this guy. He's one of my favorite people. So I wanted to have them on the show. But before you listen to them, I also got to give a huge shout out to some other people that were big inspirations on this show. You've heard me talk about him before. Colt Cabana. Colt Cabana does a great podcast called The Art of Wrestling. It's now kind of a documentary thing, but the original format of that show is a massive, massive inspiration on me and a massive inspiration on a lot of podcasts. He is a true innovator of this world and someone that uh, has been on the show. You can find him in on a past episode of Clobbering Time. Shout out to Tom the co-host with the most when it comes to the wrestling podcast. Hopefully he and I will revive that thing at one point in the future. But yeah, Cole Cabana, huge inspiration on doing this podcast. And of course, the big homie, Danko Jones. Danko Jones has been doing a podcast way longer than myself and actually gave me my first opportunity to kind of do this kind of stuff uh, years and years ago when I was on his podcast doing an interview with Duff McKagan and also Chris Jericho, even though that wasn't really about punk. So Danko, I love you and you are, a, and continue to be a huge inspiration on me, not just as a vocalist, but as a podcaster too. And I can't go any further without giving it up for the Godfathers. Mentioned it off the top of the show, even had on a guest that I first learned about on that podcast. I got to give a huge thank you to Tom Sharpling and the elusive John Worcester, who I hear is somehow involved in the show as well. And actually everyone involved in making the best show, formerly the best show on WFMU, now just the best show, uh, an autonomous force unto itself. Tom and, and John and, and, and Mike and everyone are just constant beacons of joy in a world that is not always filled with a lot of joy, even when that show is super negative. It still brings some sort of sunshine into my life. So massive, massive love to The Best Show, fought for life. And thank you once again to The Best Show for introducing me to that caller, that unceremoniously introduced us to the show. Anyway, after all that, we're back to the original inspirations that I talked about on this podcast. Here are John Pollock and Wei Ting of the post-wrestling nation on Turned Out of Punk. Ready? <laughs> show. Uh, thank you guys for coming on episode 200. This better be really good. <laughs> Is that what you think? I think it's going to be a great, great interview, Damien. <laughs> I have faith in you. 
What an honor. <laughs> 200 episodes of Turn It Up Punk. Congratulations. Well, I, I wanted to have you guys on because you're part of the reason that I did this thing. I was inspired to do a podcast because... Is that Jack Black we just saw leave? You did, uh, you did not see him. Maybe you did see him, actually. I don't know when this is going to air in the... In the sc- you gave me a whole chronology about the order. <laughs> I haven't and- put it together, John. This is not... I don't, I don't force my guests to sit as close to the microphone as possible when they come on my show. I feel like... My show has turned into your show with a lot more rules. Well, <laughs> Turn Out of Punk is meant to be a punk show with like all the freedom that in in uh, entails. No strict yeah. rules, <laughs> microphone etiquette, etiquette. You got to keep it this far from your mouth, type thing. Yeah. You got to follow those things. No food here. No candies. No food. Well, no there's coffees. candies. There are candies. There's candies. No coffees. There is a pen here. There is a pen. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely much more professional than I'm used to, uh, but. But as I said, I wanted to have you guys on because I really wanted to do this as like a thank you to all the people that helped uh, lead me to do this thing, you know, and people that inspired me. Originally, actually, Way was going to be the co-host of Turned Out a Punk. I asked him and approached What him. happened there? What happened, Way? You decided not to, right? Uh, I just didn't think I was qualified for the job. Like, I mean, imagine imagine somebody, John, asking you to to do, like, a, a punks thing. I, I, Why wasn't I asked? <laughs> well, because, John, I've got another show in mind for you. What is that? I told you my idea for the show, where you and me each week bring each other a song, and we have to listen to the whole song, and then we talk about the song. I would love that. Show. I don't know if that show would make 200 <laughs> I episodes. that show would probably not show. make 200 episodes. We could wrap after three when I'm bringing on uh, Hootie and the Blowfish. And let, the only time we would agree would be on the evolution theme. <laughs> that we would probably agree on. It's <laughs> a great, it's it's a great, great theme. theme. Yeah, it's one of the best themes. You ever. were very kind, Damien, to ask me, but like knowing how, I mean, coming from my wrestling background, knowing how intense wrestling fans get when uh, maybe outsiders try to speak on a subject they don't know about, I know that a punk audience would be even worse or maybe even crazier and more rabid and more critical of somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about. Yeah, I totally understand why you said no. And I think, you know, it makes sense now that I've done it and, and the style. But I, I thought it would be cool to have someone that was learning about it, too, for the first time. So I could kind of be like, you know, this is – I could bring it down to a much more digestible level because it gets hmm. a little nerdy on Turn Out of Punk. But this now, is why Wei won't do a Dallas podcast with me. No, anymore. he will not do a Dallas yeah. podcast. I don't think there's anyone – Probably in the city of Toronto right now that has the same Dallas Shrine going on in their uh, podcast. Studio. I can guarantee it. There's stuff out there that's beyond limited <laughs> oh, edition. Yeah. That oh I, yeah, that I have up there. Oh yeah, no, it definitely is. Uh, you know, like the why is the NBA N64 game there though? Doesn't really fit the theme. Doesn't fit the theme at all. Yeah, Other than the Dallas Mavericks are a playable <laughs> team on that particular N64 game. Uh, well, but I wanted to find out what made you guys want to go into radio uh, and, well, I guess radio television arts is where you guys met, right? But, mm. you know, both of you were going more towards radio. No, I guess you went to more visual, right, Wes? Actually, both of us were more going towards TV. Really? Radio. You too, John? Yeah, I mean, I was working in radio, but after our first year, I, this is at Ryerson University, everyone would start the first year, and it was it was heavily fixed towards towards audio-based projects and and classes. And then in second year, you kind of change and decide, are you going television or radio? Both of us opted to go television. And I would love to give some artistic reasoning for it, but I just saw way more uh, valuable opportunities in television than radio, which I felt that I was already working this stuff on the side that I would rather have my education in television because it would give me that many more options coming out of school. 
And same with you? Well, yeah, honestly, it was more like, uh, I feel like... I learned everything I needed to learn about radio very quickly. I don't know how much there is beyond like, you know, setting levels and all this shit. Whereas like video, I, to me, I thought was, was a much bigger challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, audio stuff was fun, but it was like when you're getting into the nitty gritty about sound forms and audio waves, like this is all interesting, but, it but doesn't really not matter. applicable to a whole lot of stuff. And this is 2003. We're talking 16 years later when it's, you can have very little in terms of resources and and, and put together a podcast. Oh, I absolutely. mean, it's a very easy barrier for entry, which I think is a cool thing because the good ones are going to be separated from the bad, but everyone's got a pretty even playing field to enter the market and see if you find an audience for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And But it also, 2003, it did feel like audio uh, entertainment was kind of dead because it was before this is pre-ipods generally yeah. pre-podcast with, yeah so you'd be listening to your car and you listen to the the radio but even by that point you'd be like yeah, i might just put on my ipod instead like it really felt like radio was kind of on the way out or audio yeah entertainment as a whole was yeah. the i i would there would be uh sports shows or even live audio wrestling that i would record on a cassette to sometimes listen to on my commute but it was 90 percent just you know, a mixtape, a mix CD, mm-hmm. like it was just music mm-hmm. that you were accustomed to listening to. The idea of listening to people speak in your ears, uh, like that is only a, you know, decade long phenomenon, I would say. Mm-hmm. And now that's probably people's majority choice of entertainment when it comes to commuting and what you listen to. Do you think they call it now podcasting and television arts? No. <laughs> I wonder what they call it, because do they even still call it radio and television arts? I think that's still the name of the program. Now it's called podcasting YouTube arts. It's, I, it's now digital and audio arts, maybe. Yeah. See, you I know. would imagine, though, they, they probably teach a lot less of your traditional radio techniques and a lot more uh, to do with, you know, YouTube and, and podcasting and, mm-hmm. and things of that sort. But even that, it was so different that even when we were in school, which wasn't all that long ago, but the idea was, oh, yeah, it was. if you want to get into anything to do with on-air it was like this strict rule that you're not going to make it in a major market like Toronto. You're going to have to go to a small town and get your reps in, and then maybe there will be a job for you in a big market. But that's the long-term play to get to a big market. And I, like way as well, kind of saw this detour happen where I didn't have to go to a small market to do any on-air stuff, but I did go to satellite radio, which had a lot less listeners, and on digital television with the Mm -hmm. Fight Network that didn't have a whole lot of viewers. So I kind of was able to benefit by making all my mistakes in front of a relatively small amount of people and and get better at it. That And today, like the idea of uprooting yourself to go work at a radio station, first of all, the idea of a full-time position in, in Whitby, for instance, or anywhere to uproot yourself, like I don't know how many people are going to be investing in a radio career, much less how many radio careers are out there for someone that's 19 years old at the moment. It's funny too because like, you know, you're you're a trained broadcaster who's had lots of experience doing on-air, you know, more kind of formal broadcasting type stuff, but what you make your bread and butter at, like what you're living now is is kind of like the complete opposite of that type of presentation of yourself. Like when you and Way are just chatting, you know, it's very That's all we do now. Yeah. It's uh, like I I feel that that's a major issue that people have have gone away from traditional forms of media is that you know the the six o'clock news i don't know if people have that same level of attachment to the 
the news anchor that mm-hmm. they did in a bygone era when you had four networks doing their their major te- news. Now it is so much more uh, personality driven and having a connection with the people that you're you're choosing to let into your ears for mm-hmm. several hours a day or or watching. And I, I think that. Like there's a very formal presentation that we still see on television and on radio that uh, podcasting to me, it's just it's a very different presentation for the personalities involved. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I could see a gigantic difference of how I would approach the two. So much of it, I I think, is also like, uh, you know, people splitting. We talk about this a lot, Damien, you and I privately just put about like people sticking to their niches and getting more and more branched out into the specific things that they want to hear conversations about. It would be like really difficult for Don and I to like hear a conversation at a, an hour and a half length about a particular episode of WWE Raw, you know, ten years ago. Like for me, I got into the law, the the previous radio show we were all a part of, because it was like one of those rare instances where I could turn on the radio and hear somebody talk about this this subculture that only I thought I liked. And that's why I was such a faithful listener to it. But now, like, look at what wrestling podcasts are available out there. It's, it, you know, like people are more and more finding their version of what they love to talk about with their friends and hearing uh, other people talk about it. And it, it certainly wasn't available before. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys were, like, you know, really one of the first to do a review podcast. Like, the first – like, I, when I was looking for podcasts, I knew about – I knew, obviously, because of Mouth – um, on, on CIUT, C-I-U-T. Yeah. Uh, you know, been on his show, been a huge fan of his show even. Um, but then it was like, I remember John from those digital, uh, fight TV ads for, uh, live audio wrestling that you guys would do. Right. Me, the ringmaster, oh. Mel, the consummate baby face. Oh, Jeez. that was when we went to CFRB. I, that was the first thing I, sh- I shot. No, it wasn't no, that. no, it was an ad for, it was on TV. It was for the fight it was network. From 640. Yeah. yeah. And it was like on, uh. And it was, but it wasn't like it was such a it bad was all ad. stills, right? Like it was all no. photographs. No, it wasn't. No, I'm trying to remember. It was, it was black and white, maybe or sepia tone. It was not. It was just not very good. <laughs> it was like the one of the first things I shot. Remember, like I had a, I I came into the studio that one day and you voiced over the script. Yeah, like Brent Blanchard cut it. I don't remember this anyway. But it's I'll out there somewhere. I can't believe you watched that. Stumping John about something wrestling related. Well, this is more about John. Pollock okay, it really. doesn't matter. Wait, give me the one fucking victory on my show. I, I do remember, and I, maybe it was the same one, but <laughs> from the time that the Fight Network bought live audio wrestling, it was always this this promise that we're eventually going to get the law onto television. The law will be its own TV show, and it was always just a it's coming, it's coming, and it never would. And so we did this ad, and I got to write it. And oh yeah, that's we all, just include a line at the end. This that, shit is all on YouTube. I'm watching it now. <laughs> this is a video. So we just add this line at the end. It's like the law has come a long way from from radio to the internet, and in the next year they will hear, debut on hear, television. Do you hear the line. Fight Network will make yet another nine. Yeah, this is the ad. From internet to radio, and in 2007, the law will make yet another jump. Onto TV with a weekly airing of the show on the fight now. I completely yeah, made that, that line up at the end. It was that, like there was that, no plan to be on TV. Happened. No, this is a different one that I'm thinking of. Too. No, you're you're thinking of this one. This is great radio, by the way. Watch watching well, stuff. <laughs> this is the one you're thinking of. This is what every punk fan wants to hear. Yes. Oh, I hated this ad. 
Your classic baby face, Dan the Mouth Lebransky. And in the other corner, the evil heel, Jason Agnew. It's solidly booked that Undertaker's a baby face. I enjoyed it. And me, Captain Charisma, oh, I'm the referee. This is brutal. <laughs> Utterly brutal. That's got. That's how I found out about you guys, though. That's how I knew. Well, then that ad worked. If it that reached one person, it definitely awesome. worked. It that's made great. Me, it made me check out the show. Uh, and then from there, I heard you guys reviewing. Was it Wow? I think it was or Glow. I think it was maybe Glow. Like very early on. I, I was just pointing it to you to oh, talk move, closer oh, move, to sorry, the microphone. Sorry. Come on, sorry. professional. Uh, yeah, you might have heard us do one of those. It was a very early one. It was yeah. very early. Uh, I have very, one. very bad recall about my own stuff. Like, yeah. Because well, your brain's too full with all this other, uh, all but, these other factors. But how strange, because I had actually seen Damien first, like years ago, going to one of your shows. I don't know if you even know about this. No, I don't think I I do. was a big fan of this band called AIDS Wolf, actually. Oh, yeah. And I went to see one of their shows at the Transac, and you guys were headlining that particular show. Wait, your taste in music and the bands you're into, it always blows my mind, because it's always like the most like random uh, band. How did you hear about AIDS Wolf? Uh, I went to a show with them in Controller Controller and Death Room Above at, uh, at uh, what is it? Um, Sneaky D's? No, it was at the, the Cathedral okay. one day. Okay. And uh, anyway, like John's just looking at the blanks. I, I wasn't invited to this concert. <laughs> but um, no, like it's Wolf, like they, they do, they're Sarah Pop. They're like yeah, a, a group yeah. of graphic artists from Montreal. So I was a big fan of all that stuff. They're one of, yeah. tell well, us some facts. One of the wildest live bands I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And yeah. Uh, yeah, very just experimental. Very, very, very experimental. hit and miss, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, but like, what, what do you look for in a in a band that's opening for you guys? Like, do you guys have much say or care of oh, who yeah, it we, is? We definitely do. Um, I don't know if there's anything in particular. We try and get everything right. Like, we try and have all different sorts of bands. You know, normally uh, we look for someone that's going to be much more popular than us after the tour, which normally seems to happen. Do you play differently if you're headlining versus uh, opening? Like, is there a certain uh, there's not any kind of a etiquette amongst the the openers of like not to do certain things that you wouldn't a headlining position, for instance. There, yeah, there no is table, etiquette. Don't do a table spot because we're going to do that. Yeah, I went. Well, no, like I went. We were open for the arcade fire on the first night. I went out and I smashed a can of Coke against my head. Like total, I would do the Sandman entrance for a while. Low, full up. can. Full can. Right? And so it's exploding everywhere, all over their gear, all over their monitors. And so they. You actually created an arcade fire. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> their our tour manager came back and said to our tour manager, who was our drummer, Jonah. Um, yeah, he can't do that. <laughs> like it fucks up all our shit. See, if I was covering this show, I would get, I would take a photo of that. And the headline the next day would be Cokehead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> took me a second. Oh, you're brilliant. Uh, but of course, like, you know, all that led up to us beating you for the first time on the street. On incredibly the street. randomly. In July yep. of 2011. Yeah. I, see, that is why you have incredible recall, John, is because you could recall the actual date that that happened. I think it was July 19th. Because that was the day after? I think it was CM2 two days Python. after. Yeah. And I would also say that that, to me, is a watershed moment for not just myself, not just our friendship, not just my podcast, but punk wrestling connection history. It all started that moment. I don't know if it all started. we got to give credit to uh, your no friend one. of mine, Robbie Brookside. Who? Yeah. Robbie Brookside. Never heard of him. Uh, I think I think you do know him now. And also, John, we have to give credit to your friend and my friend, Bob Mould, who you famously interviewed, and he's been ducking my podcast. So 
you uh, you get credit for. Is he getting... really your friend then? Well, I don't know. Apparently not. Apparently he's better friends with John than There's he is. There's an empty me. seat here on episode 200 that Bob Mold could have fit. <laughs> he could have fit in that. But, totally. Uh, uh, totally. But that, I think that day, that CM Punk pipe bomb, it was the, you know, when it really kind of became clear that punk and wrestling are very much connected. Because CM Punk, who at that point was arguably the biggest name in American wrestling. Yeah. You know, and was directly informed. Named after, no less, punk rock. Yeah. I would say it could be that. Or maybe it was just like, you know, maybe maybe the world at large, maybe having a more general acceptance of what it means to be punk. No, I don't think so. I think the world had accepted no, punk by that point. I think, it was think for, it's just a wrestling WWE thing in particular. Right there. Right there. Okay. And actually, it's funny now because because of WWE, I would argue that more people know about Straight Edge from CM Punk than they do Ian McKay. Yeah, I can't. I can't really speak on that. I, <laughs> think, I think it's your audience that that might have you know more more of a chance to debate that. But. I think we've debated on the footnotes before, and yeah. Chris O'Toole looks at me because I feel like you know you've been on footnotes. You yeah. know what it's like. I, I feel like it's two different worlds that don't connect at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there was a there was an interview once that Dan Lebransky did with CM Punk, and this is it's one of those phone tours where the guy is just doing interview after interview yeah. and you can kind of get the sense that they're just kind of going through the motions of this is interview number seven of 18. And Dan starts asking him about some music and he mentions Ian Mackay and we could not see CM Punk, but his, his voice like perked up and he like stops like, Oh, you, you really know your stuff here. And it was the first four minutes versus the last six of the interview, dramatically different. And Ian Mackay was the bridge in the middle of that interview. When I met CM Punk, it did not go that well when I mentioned poor Ian You've Mackay. never told us a story. Please elaborate. No. You didn't no, have no. a good interview with CM Punk? No, it did not go well. Oh, that's You can't bad. clown me on my show, friend. I can control the edit. <laughs> Actually, right now you can. It's completely in ways control. You guys control put this up moment. on your feed and then you give me Yeah, we'll do uh, what, what just happened with uh, Tucker Carlson. Where Did you see this? The, yeah. The unedited version that's got like 7 million views now on Twitter? Yeah. That's, uh, that's what's got to be done now in these news situations. You got to be recording on your end. Yeah, you got to make your own copy of the same interview so people can know. The John truth. Cena got burned by that once. I, it was, I don't know what the news outlet was, but they aired an interview and it was very misleading from what the actual footage was. Where John Cena, it's implied that he admits to using steroids and it's the complete opposite that he's actually saying. And the WWE, ever since. I want to say 1999, because this happened during an interview with Mick Foley, they would have their own camera running on the interview in case there was something edited and changing the tone or the context of the answer. So the WWE put out the unreleased interview, and it's a completely different explanation of John Cena. But if you watch this clip, you're led to believe that he's acknowledging past steroid use. Mm Mm-hmm. Smart. So always be running on your interviews, Damien. I should if have you're, been. If you're in the guest spot, it's gonna it's gonna kill me when you guys bury me with the edit on my own show. The self destruction of Damien Abraham <laughs> it begins right now. Uh, do you guys think we're at a punk rock moment in wrestling right now? Like this is the moment where the independent stars have more control for once than the major companies, or maybe not more control, but have some control where they didn't have before. And you have guys that are able to go out there and make themselves into stars on their own, so they have value when these companies come to them. And it's, it's very similar to what happened with these DIY bands, being able to put out their own records, being able to make themselves into 
to legitimate bands without any need of, for a major label to get involved. Do you think this is kind of happening in pro wrestling right now? Is this a is this a shift? I kind of feel like this is like um like we've been experiencing that for the past several years, you know, where like I think the underground has become the mainstream and maybe it's this year where you finally, you know, see like like I don't know, Arcade Fire appear in like a movie soundtrack like this is like them getting the financial backing of like a, a guy who owns a, a nfl team to put on their own show so i think maybe we are in the midst of it and maybe this is just a, a a bigger continuation of all that so like then who's the nirvana right like who's the band that's gonna bust it wide open because that's guess the, it's, i guess it's the elite isn't it well that's or, the f- or would you consider daniel bryan and cm punk as, as that group well, that's what I like. I have always considered, like, you know, if I'm going to put it in music terms, CM Punk to me and Daniel Bryan are like the Stooges in the MC5. And now we're looking for, or maybe they're the Clash and the Sex Pistols. And now we're looking for the Nirvana. We're looking for the band that's really going to bust it open and and change it, right? Like, there's, there's. But who's Limp Biscuits Nookie? <sighs> Gosh, that's. That's down the road. We're gonna have to figure out who the Limp Bizkit Nookie is. That's what does be- that mean? Like a, a like a wrestler who would be incredibly popular, but we all know is kind of shit. Yes, like, terrible. There's some guilty pleasure attached to. There's no pleasure for it. me involved in that one at all. Oh man, <laughs> were you? Did you ever so have shit. a Limp Bizkit phase? No, there was no. Like, this no. guy? Are you kidding me? No way. No, I couldn't imagine. I, I say this as you are one of my closest friends. <laughs> I couldn't imagine you and me at 16 years of age each. I think I would not like you. Uh, well, no. I would have been 18, too. So That's right. You're a bit older. <laughs> well, I think you guys would have more than kind of gelled on your love of wrestling. I, I feel you would have been way more judgy at, at that time yeah. of your life about the music I liked, which I purposely kept to myself for fear of people like well, you. And also, I was very judgy. Like, I hated, I loathed the fact that I loved wrestling. Like, I really didn't like the fact. Like, I wish I didn't want to watch it every time it was on and that I, I, I was very secretive, you know? Why is that, though? Especially knowing that you probably faced that scrutiny for like your music at the time. Like I imagine in your high school, there probably weren't, and maybe I'm yeah, wrong. No, maybe. no, definitely. No, I wasn't. No one liked it. Yeah, but, I mean, you've talked about like that comparison with wrestling. That I feel if you grew up a wrestling fan, it's not like growing up saying, "Hey, I'm a big Jays fan or a big baseball fan." Like completely normal that people play baseball. Wrestling, it's immediately responded with a question, and you're in a defensive position. I would say you're right, except for the years 1996 to 2000, okay. which is when I was like a teenager in high school. And those were the times where wrestling was just so popular. And the people that it was popular with, you know, and also the stuff that was popular. Like, I know it's like, you know, the Attitude Era is, is a sacred time for wrestling fans. But, like, you go back and watch it. Like, there's some amazing wrestlers. But, like, the storylines they were giving – I learned about this from you guys. Like, listening to Review Away is when I realized, like, oh, my gosh, nostalgia's made me blind to how – or made me unable to see how terrible a maybe, lot of this maybe, was. Maybe that was the Limp Bizkit era. That, probably. Yeah, actually, maybe that was the Limp Bizkit. That was definitely, to me, the arena rock era where just, like, it was really popular and it was doing really well. But, like – People are still nostalgic for it today. Yeah. Like, I'm I reading that AEW tweet and, like – yeah, you can say it's just marketing. It's just blah, blah, blah. But where What tweet? Where the one where Cody Rose is telling a kid who's trans that you can be in wrestling. Wrestling belongs to everyone. Like, that's kind of what I always wanted to see from wrestling. Like, I wanted that moment where wrestling became anti-fascist, when mm-hmm. it became anti-racist. You know, and Zack Sabre Jr. being having a T-shirt that says, this uh, armbar fascist, you know, and like – 
it just feels like this is a moment in wrestling where the wrestling that I this this is the wrestling that I wanted the whole time. Like the punk stuff, like the 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 fact that you have like Shane Strickland, you know, a guy who can do any type of wrestling in the world and still does death matches, still does a cage of death. Uh, you know, like these are all the types of people that I've been like kind of trying to find the whole time and like gravitating to the whole time. And now this is like the mainstream of wrestling. Well, it's a it's a interesting time that if you are at a, a, a associated with all elite wrestling and and non well we can keep it specific to all elite wrestling like these guys are very much possess a lot of power in terms of how they are shaping the conversation mm -hmm. about wrestling the the influences that they have what their view of wrestling is like they've largely they've built up this incredible audience very dedicated audience that they are able to mold in different ways and i think over the last year they've really understood that we we have a lot of influence here beyond our wildest dreams what we say matters and i think that they're they're trying to to use those words very impactfully and and that's the thing is they recognize the 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 stage they have you know and they they're prepared to be like role models it feels like or like not necessarily role models but they're they're prepared to be the people that you want them to be at least publicly yeah, and it's that's a generational shift from the the professional wrestling of the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. that it was so much designed around just sell tickets and get people to the arenas or buy the pay-per-view and it was very much just everything was in, it was invested in the next event and just getting people there and being those characters 24/7 where you lived around this code and today it's like, okay, the audience is way more in tune. So we can either fight that kicking and screaming unsuccessfully, or we embrace that the audience is much closer on our level than any past generations. And we can talk to them instead of just, you know, fleecing them for money. Do you remember that conversation we had like what, almost 10, 10 years ago now where I, we were talking about stars and, you know, the idea of like the band, we're, right? No, yeah, stars. We're talking about the stars. Torque, shadow Torque. Um, no, we were talking about the idea of bands, wrestlers selling their merch uh, in between, in the intermission of a show. And I, I remember you saying, like, it, it didn't make them look like stars when guys would go out and sell their own merch in between the intermission. Like, yeah. when the guys would be out there selling their own merch. And it feels like that's true. Like, at that point, there was a, a, a complete delineation. There's, there's stars, and then there are fans. And it feels like now the wrestlers, who are still stars, but they're realizing that if you can break down that wall, and the more you're able to break down that wall, the bigger it makes you. It's or, necessary. It's now, necessary. I would say. Now. Yeah, I, and and not being those guys that are just simply sitting there taking your twenty bucks. Here's your autograph. Bye. Next. Yeah. It's trying to craft meaningful interactions with these people that. You know, the, the Young Bucks and the Elite, it's not like they have millions of people following them, but the the tens of thousands that they do are incredibly loyal people that mm -hmm. when there is going to be a big show, it's not only I want to buy tickets to this thing, I will get on an airplane, I will book a hotel to be part of this experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're selling. This is, it's not a wrestling show. It's not a wrestling match. It's not even just these characters, but it is an experience they are selling these people to be part of something that they're promoting as historical and the audience feels it's historical. And that's what they're ultimately selling now that they have been able to eclipse just another professional wrestling event. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's like the only way of, of becoming, you know, an, an attraction these days because you still have your guys like your Conor McGregor's and Brock Lesnar's who are more superstars and maybe more diva-like than there's 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 been with, with anybody in a long, long time. But I think uh, maybe if you don't have anything that's all that exceptional about you or maybe not to that, that degree – I think a, a, a real connection with your audience. We're looking at, you know, like look at social media stars, look at Twitch stars, you know, all this is cultivated through um, connection with your fan base, direct mm-hmm. connection. I think Conor McGregor, definitely not Brock, but I think Conor McGregor kind of embodies that in the sense that he's almost like he talks in a way that you wouldn't expect. Like we're, you know, like a pre-made star, like someone that's been through the star system to talk. Like he speaks the way your friend who's watching the thing beside you would speak. Yeah, but he's also got like this incredible swagger that like that yeah. he's Ric Flair. Yeah. Know? But yeah. everyone's buddy has that swagger when they're alone. He just is able to turn it on in front of I guess millions and billions of people. And he can back it up too. He can back it up. Yeah. Well, speaking of backing up, I gotta back it up right out of the post wrestling studios right now. But this has been a a huge thrill to get you guys on the show. And thank you for the constant inspiration on uh, on everything. And thank you for the hours and hours and hours of audio entertainment. And now that we've done your show, there's no, there's nothing you can hold over us. And now you have to come back and do our show. Oh, I will. I come on your show. Any, there's so few places in my life where I can freely nerd out about wrestling, including my own podcast. Because when I do, people get upset normally. So anytime you have me, I'm there. Except for when I have to pick up my kids, and when George Errol retires, yeah, when Errol Hawani gets booked. <laughs> cool, that's good. Is that it? That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. Excellent. That was great. Uh. Thank you, Way and John, for coming on the show, and you can find them both each and every well, day. Uh, over there at Post Wrestling, they have a great Patreon as well that you should support and check out. And just, yeah, they, that is really one of the great moments of joy on tour for me is every time I boot up the old podcast app or now probably streaming service and see that they have posted a new episode. It always makes me very excited. I love listening to them each and every week as with, as I do Cole Cabana and as I do the best show and as I do uh, a, a plethora of other wrestling podcasts, mainly just wrestling podcasts, except for the best show. But other than that, yeah, pretty much exclusively wrestling podcasts if I'm being honest. And I honestly have to say thank you as well to Jack Black for coming back on the show, Jonah Falco for interviewing me. And that Charles off the top for just making me feel like an uninformed fool um, because that's what I was hoping he would do. That's really, really what I was hoping he would do. Uh, Speaking of hope, I hope you come back next week. I also hope you check out that Patreon. Please, please do me a favor and check out Turned Out of Punk's Patreon starting next week. Speaking of upcoming on the show... Next week on the show, we are going to be kicking off the post-200 era with a bang. Because next week on the show, it's Greg Antonito of the band The Bouncing Souls on the show. One of the most requested guests we have around here at Turn It a Punk. And finally, 
finally, Greg will be coming to the show. So I'm excited for that next week. Week after that, Jake from Health will be here. And then we've got a whole month of special stuff coming up after that. I got uh, We got big stuff. We got big stuff coming up in the near future on Turned Out of Punk. But that is starting next week. So before I let you go, once again, huge, huge thank you to... Tristan, my brother, Kim Ross, Amy Abrams, Brian Schwartz, uh, the, everyone at Vans, the fine folks at Vans, uh, Chris O'Toole, Buddha Blaze, uh, Tom, uh, everyone that's been involved in this show, all of you for listening, every guest we've ever had on this show. Rest in peace to my friend Tony. Rest in peace to my friend Freddie. Rest in peace to my mom. And rest in peace to Wenda. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, please, please. Go there and sign your organ donor cards. And remember, this shit is easy. Anyone can do it. So go out there and make your own culture. And yeah, I'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting this show and for listening each and every week. And I will continue to make it. And uh, that's it. Bye, everyone. Love you.